Human culture thrives when discussions about what is true, what is just, and what is beautiful is remembered as an ongoing, never-ending, never-complete conversation. To quote Milton, by the known rules of ancient liberty, welcome to Risky Conversations. I am your co-host, Ace Deliri. Join us as we engage in this ancient tradition of discussions around interesting topics with utterly fascinating people. We have Firsa, uh, and he is going to be uh, discussing various uh, topics with us, including the concepts of libertarianism, uh, globalism, how the United Nations tries to project a certain sense of political ideologies across the world, what he thinks about the government American system. We're going to get into some software stuff. We're going to talk about all the languages he speaks. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Firsa for you. Firsa, please uh, give us a much more personalized introduction into who you are and uh, how we got together on this podcast. All right. Uh, So um, I think you basically covered most of the topics that I'd like to talk about. And um, so just as a quick introduction, um, so I was born in France. Uh, but I'm originally from Lebanon and, uh, you know, half of my family's from here, half of my family's from there. And so I've gotten, uh, the opportunity to travel a lot. And so I've learned a bunch of languages around the, uh, along the way. Um, and, um, through my, uh, you know, experiences when I was in high school, I, uh, I had the chance to travel to the U S a lot, uh, once visiting the United Nations. And, uh, so that's kind of how I got, um, interested in u.s politics and uh yeah i think that's basically it cool so you said you speak uh multiple languages what are they uh so french is my native language lebanese and uh, tunisian are from my uh both my families and uh of course then you know classical arabic uh i'm learning swedish right now uh and uh i i have basically learned spanish in school oh wow that's uh quite you you basically do belong in the u.n (laughs) <laughs> hopefully not <laughs> so you can carry on your conversations there uh in, in multiple dialects so so what's the difference uh when you said because you just said you speak lebanese and then um uh traditional arabic so uh, pardon my ignorance uh what what exactly is the difference between the two how far apart are they i have to tread very lightly here because uh a, a lot of people are going to get mad if i get this wrong but um so basically uh, classical Arabic, what we call uh, fusha in Arabic, right, is um, it's basically a written language. Uh, it's what's used in religious scriptures. It's what you, what's used in TV news. It's what's used uh, in, in newspapers. And it's not really spoken a whole lot, right? There's always going to be uh, what people call dialects uh, right. that are derived from Arabic. But the thing about uh, mostly the uh, uh, Mediterranean languages, so Tunisian, Lebanese, um all those sort of languages that people traditionally think of as dialects of Arabic are actually much further than Arabic than some of the uh, Romance languages like French and Spanish. Uh, so Lebanese was, of course, influenced by Arabic, but it's it, it's the roots of a lot of the words that we use are completely different from Arabic. And it's very obvious. Some of them are from um, Aramaic roots, uh, etc. And it's just, you can see the same thing in Tunisian, for example, where a lot of the languages comes from native uh, Berber and from uh, Maltese. So, yeah. Oh, that's cool. Well, like I said, it wouldn't be risky conversations if we weren't going to start off by uh, upsetting a couple of linguists, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so with that be, uh, being said, I, I do recall that we were discussing about how you wanted to 
work in the telecom sector as a consultant in the, in the near future. What, what exactly were you planning on doing and uh, how are you involved in that side of the uh, operation when it comes to computers? Uh, so right now, uh, I'm not really sure what I'm going to be assigned to, but um, I'm most likely going to be working on uh, uh, 5G. I, I can't say like much about it because uh, I'm not sure how much I'm allowed to say, but yeah. No, that's fine. That's fair. And mostly, so your, your experience when it comes to programming languages um, is, uh, from what I recall in your bio, is mostly about C++, yes? Yeah, so I mean, I, I, I've done most of my work in Java and C++, C++ but I, I enjoy C++ much more. Wow. I've never I've never met a person who actually <laughs> enjoy working in C++, but this is this is what we created this platform for. Uh, so how long have you been programming for? Uh, so I started programming when I was uh, maybe I think 14, 15, something like that, but never anything you know formal or whatever. But I uh, I started seriously when I um, started my bachelor degree about three years ago. Oh, right on. All right, so uh, let's get into the meat of the matter. Uh, let's discuss the uh, the topics that interest you the most, which happens to be uh, the you know the, the the political system of the United States. So first, before we uh, you know dive into all that, just give us a little background of what you uh, understand it to be, and then we could start to go into it and uh, you know find some areas of agreement and some areas of disagreement, and see if we can both come off uh, better for it. Right. So I think what people uh, take away mostly from the U.S. system of government is um, checks and balances and um, separation of power. And those are mostly, you know, slogans that get thrown around. I think that like separation of powers is really important, though, because um, I, I feel like almost I remember when I was uh, in, in French high school, uh, we were talking about, you know, separation of power, democracy, all those concepts of civics. But I never really thought that uh, most of the European nations really have a separation of power like the U.S. has, because um, if you look at each branch of the government in the United States, they're they're very separate and beholden to each other, whereas in Europe, especially the um, the executive and legislative branches are basically creatures of each other, whereas the judiciary is going to be independent, of course. But the executive and the legislative, I feel like the lines are so blurry in Europe. And you, you, that's why you have things like, say, uh, in Sweden um, last year, uh, there was a uh, an election and it took them almost three to four months to choose a prime minister because the executive, the chief executive is actually chosen by the legislative in Sweden. And in most European nations, that's how it is. So is that for, for our non-European um, folks who don't really pay attention much to the politics there? Is this a, a symptom of what's happened since the creation of the EU, or was this always the way it operated? Uh, so it really depends, because the, the, the history of the European nations is so rich. Some of them have gone through dozens of different systems of government. For example, in France, we've had five republics, two empires. So uh, it's it's evolved over time. But... Uh, say, for example, uh, in the UK, the, that example is pretty, uh, I think it stayed almost the same. The only thing that has changed in the UK really is that the House of Lords has basically been reduced to an honorific role. But, right. Yeah, but it's it's basically still the legislative that chooses the prime minister, and which is the chief executive. And mm. if the chief executive isn't popular and the legislative wants to get rid of him, they just get someone else, right? Right, right, right. See, this this goes back to the, the conversations around... Um... Uh, localism and 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 you know decentralization because what what ends up sounding good in theory is that we want to create a system where we can sort of uh, it's always been the case ever since World War II is that we want to prevent another Hitler from quote unquote being voted into power right yeah it sounds good point. yeah it sounds good until a, a utterly incompetent buffoon comes into power 
And the people who put them in power realize, wait a minute, if we control who goes into power, in essence, we're kind of controlling what happens here. So we can sort of dictate terms in a, in a particular way. We can push a particular agenda. We can, you know, uh, as you said earlier, we can usurp those lines that separate uh, one branch of government from the other because we're essentially almost a shot callers without really having to be held accountable for it. So would that be more of an accurate description of the flaws of the system you currently see? But that's that's basically pretty much it for the European Union, at least because um, one thing that I've uh, noticed is that not uh, Europeans really like the EU. That's that's what I, the concept, at least the concept of being European and belonging to this, you know, 27 nation kind of group or 28 now. Um, they, they like this idea, but almost no one really knows how it functions because a, a lot of people are surprised. For example, you know how we've had the European elections a week ago. And, yeah. Um, a lot of people think that, you know, uh, so, some of these uh, parties that say, hey, uh, the EU is flawed, but we want to change it. That's not actually possible. Like the people you're voting for, they go to the European Parliament. They don't actually have the power to produce any legislation. The only uh, body of the EU that can uh, produce legislation and put it up to a vote is the European Commission, which mm -hmm. is um, uh, composed of a body of commissioners who are not elected. Yeah, no, you know, it's funny about that. I was, uh, before we got into this conversation this week, I was just trying to look into how all this stuff works because I was like, okay, you know, I haven't really paid much attention to European politics in a while. So let me just go and just figure out what's happening here. And what's funny is uh, the first red flag I saw was the fact that all the YouTube videos that I normally go to for sources of, you know, things explained, like I'm just like, get my feet wet and then I'll go into a deep dive with some people who are really into it. Even the guys who are just trying to give you a brief primer were like, look, this is really complicated. We're not really sure if we can explain this well, but here's a shot at it, right? And I was like, wow, the fact that you can't even explain how this system is constructed is right off the bat a big red flag for me. And so it's not surprising that the idea sounds good to people's minds, but that's because they're blinded to the reality of how it's put into practice. Would that be an accurate sentiment as to how you're seeing uh, the events unfold around you? Yeah, definitely. Uh, also, uh, I find that the, the I understand why they do this kind of thing, but it's kind of uh, I, I find it uh, it makes me kind of wary when I see that the EU does a lot of, of PR for itself. Right. So you'll see in, in, in a lot of places in Europe. Um, so in France, for example, where during European elections, you know, they'll put up some. OK, say this example, um, when mm. you go to an airport anywhere in mm -hmm. Europe, right, mm -hmm. the second you land, you will usually see some sort of a sign saying, Hey, uh, you know, welcome to Europe and blah, blah, blah. And some kind of sign about the European Union saying, hey, the EU is making things better here. Right. Those those, you know, they put these signs up everywhere and these sort of slogans that are all paid by the taxpayer of the nation where their airport is. In. And it's very strange. For example, France, um, we give um, uh, about 27 billion uh, euros to the European Union every year and we get 16 billion back. And um all these sort of EU services that we get, you know, how uh, people say they, oh, the EU is funding this program or this program. Well, really, it's just our money, really. Right, right, right. No, uh, the, the, it's, uh, first of all, when you talk about the, the creepy advertisement when you walk into uh, the airport, it, all I could think about is the posters in Big Brother, right? Ink Sock has your back. Yeah. So it's kind of creepy on that level. But I, what's interesting about that is um, uh, when you say the trade is, uh, you know, 27 going out, 16 or so coming in. Are there any bean counters at all? Like usually bean counters, even the ones who are not necessarily visionary in the sense to say, okay, look, we're going to invest in X, Y, or Z. But there are people who just look at us and say, it seems like the experiment is us just paying out for this ideology that doesn't really necessarily seem to be 
uh, coming back to us. Because from where I sit, where we sit, uh, when we're looking at this, it looks like essentially Germany is running the entire operation. And, and, and the, the vast other uh, economies that are benefiting from the EU are essentially passing this uh, bag around with all their problems. And they're just hurtling around various nations. You know, you got the unemployment problems, you got the, um, you know, uh, debt crunch processes where they say, okay, we have to have more fiscal responsibility. So tighten up the nooses. They got the drug problems. I, my a friend of mine recently told me, you know, they'd gone to visit Greece and, and how bad the uh, the scenario is over there. Now you got the front, the yellow vests in France, which is what I really wanted to get to with you is uh, what's happening there. Because on our side, especially in Canada, unless you go on YouTube and search for this stuff, there's no conversation about it in the uh, general sphere. The public has zero idea. Even if you mention yellow vests in Canada, which is supposedly a modern, uh, you know, first world westernized country, you, you mentioned yellow vests and nobody knows what you're talking about. So let's tie all that into what it is you're witnessing. And then we can look at that and mirror it. Because what, what, it, what it appears to me like is that the ugliness of what people see as American politics on TV is nothing compared to the actual ugliness that you see on the streets where there's this massive centralization of power that's basically usurping every inch and every step of what people should and shouldn't do. Yeah, so... Um... For, for the for the case of France, it's, it's very funny because you don't see a lot of media coverage for it. And, you know, we can speculate as to why the reasons uh, well, what are the reasons for that. Right. But what's more important is that um, at the end of the day, a lot of people in France who live outside of Paris, um, they, Paris is such a huge metropole that uh, it encompasses, you know, a lot of surface area even outside the city walls. And so a lot of people who uh, live outside of Paris have to uh, commute to Paris every day to work and then come back home. It's it's a there's a very um, common expression in France called uh, metro boulot de deux, which means uh, subway, work, sleep. That's basically what people's lives look like, right? They go to they commute to Paris, they work, they come back, and they sleep. And uh, some people who are outside the metropole of Paris um don't don't have access to some of these uh public transports or whatever and so they have to use their cars their cars are their primary form of transportation it's their livelihood and so uh on top of all the other issues that we're talking about uh that are mostly caused by uh i think the uh, the eu and the centralization of power like unemployment etc when the uh gas prices were already going up the government decided to um increase uh, diesel taxes and so that really just basically blew up the system because people realized they could not uh, make enough money to m meet their ends for the month, right? And so right. then a lot of small movements erupted all around France. Uh, when you do see media coverage, you see a lot of for Paris because, you know, it's very impressive to see a bunch of people with Molotov cocktails in the middle of the Champs-Élysées. But there's little protests and riots like that all over France, even in small towns and in some of the big other big cities. Mm. And what are the, what what exactly are the uh, yellow vest uh, protesters hoping to achieve? What's their what's their message? What's their uh, disagreement with what's going on? How would they like to see the rep or, uh, these issues rectified? So I think that's where we get to the meat of the issue. Is that um, in, in France, uh, I, I feel like people don't really know what they want. A lot of people on the ground that are yellow vests will say, "Hey, uh, taxes are too high." Uh, I, I, I cannot afford the increase of diesel um, and everything's expensive, uh, unemployment's on the rise. We'd like the state to take care of us. And that's where the problem comes in, because a lot of people think that these things can be solved by 
uh, more state services, more uh, uh, Providence state, more of these things, which are obviously going to come from more taxation. And France is already the most taxed nation in the world. So something is going to collapse here. And so that's why the government, uh, uh, when our president Macron, he comes into a uh, uh, you know, he makes a speech and he says, hey, these are the reforms I'm going to make. No one's happy because there's nothing he can do, really. Even though I don't really like the guy, there's not much he can do. You can't have more state services without higher taxes. Right. That makes sense. But the, the question is this. When you say it uh, is one of the highest tax rates, can you give us sort of a, an idea? Because to pe most people, they have no clue as to what that may mean, because what's a high rate in Canada may be nothing compared to what's happening in Sweden or Finland or, 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 or Denmark. So what's exactly what exactly is the tax rate at, uh, in France in Paris and France oh, so actually? It's it's not really about the rate itself because in, so when I said we're the most taxed nation in the world, uh, I didn't mean that we had like the highest rates of income tax. Scandinavian nations have much higher rates than us, but okay. we have taxes for anything. We we there's I, I call this like politics by uh, acronyms because France has so many of these like sort of programs and services that are just ac three letter acronyms that we, we, we have no idea what they mean at some point. We're just giving all this money for state services that we don't know what they are. And, you know, we're getting taxed for anything. Uh, I remember back in, um, well, it wasn't my time, but the government basically pushed for um, uh, people to switch to diesel because it was more env uh, in environmentally conscious, right? They wanted to phase out gasoline. And so they gave out all these subsidies for people to buy diesel cars. And it was pretty much the same thing all across Europe, actually. And uh, so diesel was really pushed that way. And now you have all these people who um, bought diesel cars because they were encouraged to do so by the state. Um, and now diesel's going up because it's not environmentally conscious anymore, so they have to tax it. So at some point, there's obviously something going on that just doesn't work. The, the state doesn't know what it's doing. So that, that, that's kind of uh, what I meant when I, when I said uh, highest tax nation in the world. We have just taxes for almost anything. But for actual numbers, I think that... Um, I think the actual income tax brackets are uh, pretty much re really not not that different from what you see in the rest of Europe. We're a bit higher than Germany, I think. We're about like 20% for the first tax bracket. Okay, fair enough. So so the, the, the question I have for you is, is as follows. Um, you stated that, you know, um, you're basically uh, brought up in a, in a particular manner in terms of how you see the world uh, from a liberal point of view. And I mean that in the uh, in the sense of the you know, um, globalism point of view. And then all of a sudden you kind of shifted towards uh, looking at things more from a libertarian point of view. So can you just walk us through what it is you saw, how you saw it, and then what you think libertarianism is? Yeah, so um, I don't I don't really want to make the distinction between uh, liberalism and libertarianism, but that's an issue for another time. Um, so <laughs> just because I don't want people to co-opt the term. Uh, but uh, so what happened is that... Um, I, I was invited to this um, sort of a leadership kind of grooming thing. And uh, so we visited the UN and we had all these seminars about, uh, you know, uh, international institutes. We had speeches from uh, World Bank leaders, things like that. And uh, I, I was really all for international cooperation and all these things. But uh, at the end of the day, I kind of felt that uh, a lot of things, a lot of things that happened in the UN, um, just they, they really don't amount to, to much. It's just a it's just a, a body where people talk and nothing happens. And and 
all these international institutes that uh, kind of rule from the top and really uh, g give out, for example, grants or whatever. If you look at, for example, the World Bank, um, I don't know the specifics, but I'm sure there's a lot of people who have um, personal experiences uh, in Brazil, for example, where the World Bank basically just destroyed their economy. And um, so I, I, at one point, I kind of felt that all these top down uh, decision making organisms weren't weren't really creating any solutions you know after a while there's there's a there's, there's one point where you really have to say hey all these objectives are great and it's the same thing for the eu all these objectives are great but there's no one really that holds these bodies accountable no one says for example the eu says hey uh the year 2022 will have like this much unemployment we'll have this rate of inflation across the eu etc but no one ever goes and says hey this didn't work what do we do now uh it, it's just always constant constantly chasing dreams. And and so at some point, someone has to uh, look at the actual results and compare them to the prediction. And that never mm -hmm. happens because the institutions are top down in nature. No one holds right. them accountable. And right, right. Uh, what really switched it to me is when uh, I remember, I was already interested in US politics, but I remember in 2012, uh, I watched uh, Ron Paul uh, debate uh, during the Republican primaries. And right. He was talking about things like, hey, um, why are we spending all this money abroad when we could spend it here at home and just bring our troops home and stop wasting money, uh, you know, creating governments or rebuilding nations over here and over there. And that really resonated with me. Yeah, well, that makes sense. See, what, what I find interesting about that is uh, the idea of libertarianism has a certain appeal to it. And I, and I mean that in the following sense. So uh, the vast majority of the people that uh, tend to be uh, students of probability and, uh, and understand complex systems and dynamics of that system tend to recognize the fact that it's better to leave things alone and just focus yep. on things that you have actual uh, influence over. And that's cool, but you can't invite a whole lot, a lot of people to do that, right? It's like once we create a party out of that, it doesn't necessarily hold true to the original ideas anymore because the very definition of a libertarian, and, and, and as far as I can tell from my understanding of it is, are people who think for themselves. And as soon as you put a bunch of people who think for themselves and say, okay, this is now the new party of the people who think for themselves, it's almost a contradiction in terms. So that's why you never really see it go mainstream, even though we have people out there who push the ideas, like, you know, Ron Paul is pushing it and a, and a few others are uh, you know, following suit. But, um, and almost... Uh, of all the pe people I speak with who are political, and I speak to all of them, I have people who are, you know, communists, and they invite me to their, uh, you know, uh, Sunday evening conversations, and I go over there and we sit down and chit chat because I'm always interested in people's perspectives. Like, okay, how did you come to these set of ideas? You know, what are your beliefs about these ideas? And then, I know I, I like to let them explain their ideas as best they can before I start to question as uh, you know some areas where I find a little bit of fault in it. But what I find interesting is when when I get together with a group of people who are libertarian. There's vast, there's almost a, a, an impetus to disagree by very nature. So we can't even get along on certain terms in terms of, okay, what is the definition of AI? What is the benefits of AI? Why, why would a universal basic income come into play? So every single one of those questions that normally would have a unified answer in part political camp A or political camp B has 15 different answers from 14 different people in, in, the, in the libertarian circle of things because it tends to be the group that draws more people who think for themselves and as a consequence, uh, by default, as soon as they realize that they're, they're agreeing too much and too often with too many of their friends, they start to think, well, maybe I've fallen into the trap of uh, groupthink. So they start to fold back a little bit and say, okay, hold on a second. This, uh, although I see what you're saying about that particular issue, um, they instinctively look for flaws in it. So it's almost like 
uh, every other political party and the affiliation of their groups look for cohesion with, with areas where they agree on things. Whereas the libertarian bunch, almost by default, look for things where they disagree just so they can say, okay, we're much more uh, attuned with reality because we're looking for things that break the narrative versus things that reinforce the narrative. Has that been your experience when, you, when, you're, when you're discussing political ideologies with people? Yeah, definitely, which is quite funny because um, a, a lot of people th seem to think, especially in the U.S., for example, that say um, there's a lot of diversity on one side of the political spectrum and then the other is just, you know, conservatives who uh, believe in big business. Whereas I, I actually find that um, there's much more diverse uh, political opinions on, on the other side because libertarians almost never agree with each other. And I think that's what makes us... Um, much more robust is that we constantly find flaws in each other's argument and we constantly refine our worldview depending on what we understand. And I actually don't agree with having a, a libertarian party per se. I agree with you that it doesn't really make sense, which is why I, I really like uh, people like, say, Rand Paul or Ron Paul that were running as Republicans, but had their own libertarian policies and ideologies they were trying to push to the rest of the party. Right, right. Well, it, it, it makes it interesting because it comes in the following sense where there's a, there's a, you, you need a group cohesive idea, right? You need a set of ideas that are um, binding a group of people. And, and that could be just a general simple set of terms. Like, for example, the, uh, the belief that, okay, all people are uh, to be given the dignity and respect of not being encroached upon their freedoms. So don't force them to do anything they don't want to do by means of force or by means of taxation. So that's a good idea that can get a bunch of people in the room to agree. But then how you go about and implement that idea is where the disagreements will really start to uh, emerge, right? And that's what I think is interesting because when uh, you know, I have these conversations with people in Canada um, and, and uh, there's, a, there's a scandal right now going on with um, the current prime minister and his party. He had uh, two female cabinet members who yeah. basically sort of spoke out about all the uh, various uh, indiscretions of the party and how they handled particular uh, issues with regards to the SNC uh, Lavalin scandal. And uh, the, the people who are uh, very much in the, in the party who I speak with, uh, they had an interesting conversation last week because what happened was these two female uh, candidates decided that they're going to run as independents going forward. So I said, okay, well, look, there's a person who took a position uh, based on what they thought was true, and they didn't toe the party line. So that's actually admirable. Whether I agree with uh, what they did or not and how they got to there, that's one thing. But at least on this particular set of facts, I can say that here's a person who saw something they didn't agree with, and they've been basically pushed out of the party, which is fine. And instead of joining uh, an opposing camp, they've decided to go fully independent, which is still a very respectable position to take. But the people around me, and I had this conversation with a number of them, uh, they're like, actually, no, this is, these people are terrible because they're going to hurt the party. And as a consequence of what they've done, uh, we're going to get the exact opposite. Are you the conservatives are going to come into power in Canada? So I kind of looked at that and I said, look, here's, here's the problem with it, right? You're pushing party ideology to subserve uh, or to, to override and have people serve it as opposed to the other way around. And that's where our, our major disagreement starts, which is that in my view, the person always overrides the party. And the party's job is to serve as many people as possible within the uh, limits and ranges of reason. Whereas here, you're trying to sort of invert that conversation. And you're up, upset at these two ladies who are going to be used. And of course, they're going to be used as political ads uh, in, in the upcoming election. But that's the price you pay, right? You set up a party, you did things that didn't work out, and now you want to hide all that under the rug to maintain a facade for this party to remain in power. That, to me, is the very definition of a person who hasn't read any Orwell at all. 
Yeah, I, I think that at the end of the day, once you tie yourself to a party, um, you, you just create a lot of uh, f fragility, right? Of course. As soon as, soon as somebody, uh, like say the prime minister or the leader of the party, um, is the victim of some sort of, or the instigator of some sort of scandal, right? Then everyone basically collapses. Yes. Yes, it, it is exactly that, because what ends up happening is, um, uh, and, and I think the, the, the start of the libertarian uh, philosophy starts with the following, which is that the ends never justify the means, right? And what we mean by that is as follows. Definitely. This, this goes back to your concept, and it goes back to the seems concept of uh, anti-fragility and robustness and all that stuff, and it's about bounding the losses on, on the transaction before you proceed to, to chase the benefits. And, and I always say this to people, like, look, if you say the ends justify the means, and you don't get to the ends, then all you have left are broken means, right? So you broke all these uh, uh, eggs to make this fantastic omelet, and you never finished the omelet. Now you have a bunch of broken eggs, which could have been chickens, right? So you've kind of really destroyed yourself, and you've got really nothing left, and you've got this hollow shell of, a, of an ideology that basically used people as a means to get somewhere better, and you never got there. So now what do you have left, right? And that's where the, the, the major disagreement always comes out is, and I'm like, always treat people as a means and an ends to themselves, right? Let them be what they want to be. Help them up. Don't help them out in that sense. Because then you're actually giving them an opportunity to say, look, I will meet you halfway. Yes, I know you need help with something. I'm happy to help you. But I need to, I need to, I need you to meet me halfway, so that at least it looks like it's the buy-in, right? It's a co-pay system. I help you, but you got to help yourself. And once I see that, then we could uh, up the level of, of engagement to the next state, which is that if you institute error correction uh, on your end, when you transmit information to my end, what I'll do is I'll do a checksum for you, because I'll see that hey, you know what? You've thought this through on your end, which is fantastic. You've met me halfway, and now that you've provided me this information or this point of view about what it is you think you're about to engage in, if I care enough about you, I will actually offer you a criticism from a fundamentally checksum point of view, which is I'll say, yes, I see your logic here. You're trying to do this, but have you considered this? Whereas if I don't like the person who I'm engaging with, and it's a person who has taken very little time or effort to... Uh, you know, check their priorities and to check the reality of, of, of the ideas they're chasing versus the cost of, that they're imposing on others. Um, I do the Napoleon thing, which is like, I will not interrupt you while you make your mistake because you're clearly not going to learn because reality has to teach you. You see what I'm saying? And, and, yep. and I think this kind of ties back into what you were talking about with the EU, because when these guys get together, there is no checksum and there is no error correction. So what ends up happening is the system that just keeps getting bigger and bigger and errors keep getting pushed down and sideways yeah. and they accumulate, like you said. Uh, and once they've accumulated large enough, the reset point hits and all of a sudden everything is just like within a day. It's kind of like a, a stock market crash, right? Everything is good until the day everything has to be reset. And then the day after, it's like, how could we have let this happen for so long? Yeah, and at the end of the day, when a system is so flawed and it just has absolutely no accountability, the only thing that will correct it is just to either completely leave the system or just wait for the inev inevitable collapse. There's no other way about it. I hear you. And so I want to do the opposite for us. So both of us uh, tend to agree from the libertarian point of view. But let's do the, the devil's advocate here. Let's try to say, okay, look, even though communism is a flawed approach to doing things, just simply because it centralizes authority and uh, it creates, uh, like you said, a dis disconnect and a disjoint between reality and theory. We still have to acknowledge, like, what, what, what is it offering to people that makes them actually want to do this? There has to be some benefit. It's, it's kind of like when you smoke cigarettes or if you drink alcohol, 
We know it's bad for you. Everybody knows that. But obviously, there's something in there. Otherwise, if it was just all bad, if it tasted bad and it gave you a headache and it got cancer and it cost you money, you probably wouldn't do it. And that business probably would have been uh, long gone. But let's try to see if there is something there that perhaps we're not seeing. Can you think of something that is actually very substantially uh, beneficial as long as it's applied in doses? Because what we've noticed is that uh, even good things, like if you go to the weight room and you're lifting weights, which is great, but if you reach a certain threshold, the point of, 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 of diminishing returns kicks in really, really fast. It starts to accelerate against you and it becomes poisonous as opposed to beneficial for you. So let's think about the EU in this context and say, what exactly do you think they're offering that would allow us to say, okay, this was the promise and this was the ideal. And these are set of good ideas as long as they're limited and curved. But where exactly is the value that they were originally proposing? Can you see any of that? Because I, I, I have to tell you, I fail to see any of it. But I'm so far away from it because, like I said, I'm in Canada. You're in the mix of it all. So enlighten us if you have any examples. So um, first off, an, an obvious uh, quote-unquote benefit is uh, something that um, uh, Joe Norman talks about a lot, right? Is that uh, in any top-down system, they, the, the whole point of it is to uh, increase efficiency, right? And, yep. Um, these uh, and is and it's actually one of the uh, principal goals of the EU. They always say that um, we're twenty something eight nations um, that are disjointed that uh, don't have the same interests, and we 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 just cannot have all of these actors uh, talking at the same time. Therefore, let's have you know one parliament, one commission where we will make all the decisions and just have. Uh, one body that decides for everyone and that makes things much more efficient and quick and so that's definitely the benefit that i can see from the eu and um another one is of course um it, it will depend for who right so there's an imbalance in in this sense that for example in france we give way more to the eu than we get back in terms of um financial contributions and the reason for that is because um we we pay for other nations uh, infrastructure through the eu for example croatia is um uh, is building a bridge right now and uh, France is paying about 60 million euros out of it I think through EU grants so um, there's you know a, a quote-unquote redistribution of wealth there but um, then we have where's that bridge going though <laughs> <laughs> it's actually it's the funny thing is, is that it's actually being built by a Chinese company it's being built by the um, um, top uh, construction company in China and the Prime Minister of uh, China actually came uh, uh, the other week to, to, to visit, you know, to check on his investment, quote unquote. Right, 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 right. Um, see, and here's the thing where on that particular issue, like you said, about the idea of efficiencies and the benefit of having a sort of unified point of view on a thing, I tend to, I used to agree with that. And I'll tell you why, because uh, I studied um, business. And uh, when you go to uh, business school and, and that's what you're taught, um, the idea is, okay, well, let's look at economies of scale. Let's look at the um, cost-benefit analysis, X, Y, and Z, and all that stuff, right? Which is great. All that stuff happens to work until you get in, uh, introduced to Nassim Taleb's ideas in Incerto. And then what happens then is you get a glimpse into the world that, hey, look, um, whatever plans you make uh, are basically based on the past. So it's a snapshot of the time where you are now, but that information is informed by the past that you've witnessed. And so you're going to model a new system, a new set of ideas that you're going to hope to correct for the imbalances that you saw previously. And we're going to implement that system. But by the time that system comes online and starts to be rolled out, the dynamics of the environment around you have already shifted. 
right? So when you start to produce the EU and all that stuff, that's great. But you're never going to foresee what happens when a 9-11 shows up, right? Because then the world changes with the way the U.S. starts to intervene. You know, you got all these wars and, and the, the Chinese economy starts to boom and bust and all these other things that start to happen. And the plans you had made for the EU, as grand and as beautiful as they may have been, are now statically tying you to a past that never anticipated what's happening in the future. So in essence, you are, by definition, in pursuing uh, economies of scale and efficiency, you're fragilizing yourself, right? Because now you don't have any feedback loops that actually can help you correct for the massive missteps, uh, missteps you've taken because you didn't take into account the opacity of what's in front of you. So that's where I, I always tend to leave this conversation with, uh, with most of the people who are in favor of bigger governments, or in, in favor of... Um, the European Union and everybody, you know, kumbaya along. And I always remind them, like, first of all, not everybody wants to sing kumbaya. Some people literally want to hide in the woods and come out and kill and steal and rob and, 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 and you know, rape and plunder and pillage and all those things. So that's a, that's a false notion to start with. But the second thing is that this, this, the system you generate is, is built on past assumptions. And the future uh, is always going to creep in, whether you want it to or not. It's going to creep in. And when it does and your system fights it, guess what's going to happen? The acceleration of, of the deterioration of your system is going to start to increase. And you're not going to notice it until, like you said, um, the day comes when there's a reset required, right? So, so for me, I'm watching the Brexit situation happen. I'm watching all the uh, Yellow Vest uh, uh, protests. And like you said, and I was, this is news to me when you said that you know, it's happening in, in small pockets all over France. So I'm watching all this, and I'm like, okay, there's a lot of problems here. There's a lot of pressures here. On, and, and it's on a system that wasn't designed to handle this, right? This is a load that it wasn't meant to bear. And here we are watching how the system, uh, you know, creaks and, and bends and sort of cracks in various spots. So the question I have for you is, where do you see this thing uh, breaking? Or do you see it surviving all of this? Because this is only going to get accelerated and far worse. So um, I, I actually think that the system will probably survive uh, some some years, and eventually it's just it's inevitable. It will probably take a decade or two or whatever, but eventually it's going to collapse. Um, not only because of uh, you know the, those reasons that we uh, discussed about centralization, and it, it, because at the end of the day, some of these things uh, are going to erupt in some form of violence, and eventually just everything's going to plummet. For example, in Paris, a uh, very scary thing is that. Um, We've had some APCs that have rolled through Paris to, you know, control some of the crowds. And uh, those APCs do not have French flags. They have EU flags, which is very, very strange. Um, mm. Because, you know, we have this, you know, overarching body that sends out armed forces against a sovereign nation. It's, it's, it's very strange. They're obviously here at the behest of the French government, but it's, it's still fishy. Right, and so just for the rest of us uh, to to be to be on board, an APC is exactly what. Uh, it's a, basically a, um, it's, it's it's an armored vehicle used to control crowds. Okay, so and what yeah. kind of weapons are they deploying? Is it just uh, water guns, or are they actually hitting people with sound waves, or what exactly are they doing to control this crowd? So I, I don't exactly know the details, but APCs for crowd control usually have uh, high pressure water guns. Okay. Cool. So that's, again, more interesting news on that front. Uh, so the other question I wanted to ask you for uh, on this particular front is um, uh, when you are um, uh, witnessing the American system and how it's basically become very vocal because of social media 
and your 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 appreciation of it for for you know what you see in France and and I know from history that um, Jefferson uh, very much had an influence on the the French uh, Revolution and their thinking. I'm not sure if it was that the revolution had an influence on him or he had an influence on the revolution. One of those two things. I may I may be getting my facts mixed up here. It's uh, uh, but the idea is to when you see what you see in France and when you see what's happening in the U.S., how do you sort of um, reconcile what your ideal uh, vision of what a good government system like uh, the U.S. represents versus what's, how it's actually being handled in practice? How do you reconcile the difference? How big of a difference do you see? So uh, are we talking just about the U.S. right now? Yeah, just about the U.S. right now. Right. And then we'll bring it, loop it back into how that particular, because uh, right now, I'll be honest with you, I'm very ignorant as to how social media impacts the politics in, in, in France. So once we get how it, uh, how you, uh, as somebody uh, living there, can see what's happening in the U.S., we want to revert it back to how, how is social media and the fake news and all that stuff that people are always concerned about, how is it playing out over there? Right. So uh, the the very funny contrast in the U.S. is that um, the media corporations have much more power. They have a bigger audience, uh, much more resources. They're ingrained in the political system. Uh, and yet the other side is is equally as strong, if not stronger. I mean, if you look at the uh, 2016 election, virtually all of the media coverage was slanted towards one candidate. And yet right. you still have that reactionary force that flipped it on the other side, which which just shows that there's something in there that is um, not solid, but uh, I don't know what term to use exactly, but there's there, there's still this um, idea that eventually all these little pockets in the U.S., it doesn't matter whether they live in New York or San Francisco, right? Those um, foundations of the U.S., such as the Electoral College, give a voice to people who are, you know, in the... Uh, middle of Montana to middle of Ohio, right? And mm -hmm. even though California has, I don't know how many millions of people living in it, they still have a, pro a proportional voice compared to someone who's living uh, in a, um, a Midwestern state, right? And right. so th that's why I actually decry the fact that a lot of uh, Americans think that they should do away with the Electoral College. It makes no sense to me because uh, there, there's actually a, a, a law in uh, Nevada uh, last week um, where the, uh, sta the, the, the state legislature tried to um, uh, pledge the votes of the state to the winner of the popular vote. But that really doesn't make sense because Nevada is, is, is such a small state. Why would any candidate fly out to Nevada and uh, listen to the concerns of the people living there or, or try to um, uh, fit their agenda to fit those people there if they're so politically expedient? It makes no sense, which is why the Electoral College is such a solid system, in my opinion. And yet, it's it's it is old, but it still holds it still holds true today. So, yeah, no, I I've I've had this conversation on numerous occasions ever since, mostly obviously since 2016, and I always remind them, I'm like, look, uh, any system you want to redesign, uh, you're redesigning it for your own benefit, which is fine, but you have to remember something. Exactly. Anytime you do that, the opposite team will eventually find a way to game that system as well. Right. So if you think a majority vote is a good idea. First of all, you're opening yourself up to a whole slew of problems you can't even fathom. But the second uh, aspect of this is that the opposite party is not going to just sit still. They're not going to just say, oh, now that it's based on uh, reasoning X, Y, or Z, we're basically going to just uh, fold every play and let them take the, uh, the winnings off the table, right? There will be a different uh, problem that you're going to create for yourself. And what makes the system uh, quite uh, robust, in my opinion, is the fact that if you wanted to uh, game the election, you really would have to know 
ahead of time with 100% accuracy as to which uh, states are going to be the swing votes, and you have to know how to get to that. And you can't really tell because every time that you do the, you know, as, as I've read up on this stuff, every time they have an election, it's a different area that actually swings the whole thing, right? And so ahead of time, you can't, you, even the candidates who are investing heavily and in trying to win, even they don't know, and they're on the ground trying to get this to work. So it actually is tamper-proof from two layers. It's tamper-proof from the inside, and it's tamper-proof from the outside, which I think is a very interesting um, way to, uh, to organize a political uh, system. In the sense that every other country that I've seen uh, where they do have uh, a quote-unquote variation of democracy put in place, the vast majority of the people always vote the kind of people that they really shouldn't put into power to start with. And uh, even though it's a democracy, like we said, you can vote somebody like Hitler in. And, and, and the key here is not to worry about, oh, we want to build a system where uh, a byproduct of, you know, Einstein meets Jesus becomes president or whatever. The, the more interesting aspect of it is, how do you prevent a banal, uh, a useful idiot from coming into power? And that's what's much, much, much more interesting. That's what allows a, a political system to survive because people don't live a thousand years. People will be in power at most, you know, uh, 30, 40 years if you're living in a, in a dictatorship. But even after that time period, the next guy coming in, you want to make sure that the next guy getting in isn't somebody that's going to basically rampage the system and just shut everything down, as we've seen in Venezuela. Yeah, I think it's even it's, it goes even further than that because say um, so the, the the U.S. Constitution doesn't doesn't it, it's it's not that impressive if you think about it, right? The the the, the preamble to it, where it, you know the actual Bill of Rights that um, the the first few amendments that say, oh, here's freedom of speech, here's freedom of assembly, freedom to petition, petition your representatives, they're not that impressive. If you look at the USSR Constitution, they had a lot more rights afforded to the people, but the system wasn't built in a way that would um, prevent one person from accumulating a lot of power, which is why almost all of these states become uh, autocratic dictatorships. Um, whereas the U.S., it's it's not about uh, preventing a useful idiot from getting to power. It's about preventing that useful idiot from making damage. And the the, the president of the United States is has to compromise and, and constantly work things out with Congress. And Congress has to work things out with both of their houses, which is something that we... A lot of uh, countries in Europe don't see the benefit of. And so the U.S., they have the House of Representatives and the Senate, which are two houses with almost equal power. And they both have to work together and pass bills and amendments through both of them to even submit a bill to the president. Whereas, for example, in France, our Senate is is honorific. It really, it, I mean, you know, it has power on paper. The House mm -hmm. of Lords in the U.K., uh, it doesn't really have power either. I mean... They, 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 they're only there to, you know, quote unquote, supervise. Sweden doesn't even have a bicameral legislator; it has one house. Um, and and so, if you look at a lot, of, a lot of countries don't don't see the benefit of that. For example, in Lebanon, our our constitution in Lebanon actually has a provision to have a senate, but there is no senate in Lebanon because you know no one sees the point of it because they, uh, we have a lot of different uh, populations who um, would think that some areas would have more power with the others if we had them. So a lot of co countries do not see the benefit of a bicameral legislator in the first place. Right. So. Right, right. Well, you know what's what's interesting about that is uh, what we like. Uh, one of the things I like in Canada is when we have a minority government. Right. So what what ends up happening is um, nothing gets done, which is actually kind of good because the vast majority of things that do get done by the state tend to be bungled. And I always have to remind people, I'm like, yes. There are roads, yes, there are hospitals, but you're not looking at what that costs you to get. You're just looking at the benefit of it. You, there's a way to have done this, which would have been a lot cheaper and a lot more uh, cost effective for you and me and everybody around us. But you're just seeing that, hey, 
you know, we just gave this guy a trillion dollars because he robbed us from our, our account. But look, he took us to lunch. You know, he bought us lunch. And you're happy with the lunch. You just forget how much money you've been fleeced for, right? So so the, the, the ideal government, in my opinion, has always been a very uh, heavily opposed government every step of the way. I, I want opposition to everything. You want You have an idea? I don't care how good it sounds to you. What I want to see is if that idea is so good that it can actually survive vitriolic attack from all sides who don't necessarily agree with you. And then what I could do with that is I could say, okay, whatever version of this gets passed, it won't be that terrible. It'll be terrible, but it won't be absolutely catastrophic. And a lot of people don't like that. A lot of people like the camp of, you know what, I want uh, everybody to kind of agree on something. Let's just have a direct vote and then we'll just go with the majority. And I'm always like, okay, you want to go with the majority? Here's a problem with that. What if we put you in a room with a thousand Nazis and everybody takes a vote as to who should they who who should die and who should live? Would you like that conversation? No. Oh, okay. So so majority vote doesn't work in that instance. No, it doesn't. Okay, great. What if we put you in a room where there's there's ten people and there's two people who are very uh, unreasonable, and that the other eight people are semi reasonable? Who's going to win that argument? What if we flip the numbers to a thousand in a room, a ten thousand in a room, and and what if we take those ten thousand in that room? And we search out the preferences of those 10,000 people. So we bring in 10,000 people who agree with you and you vote on a particular set of ideas. Great. But what if we bring in 10,000 people who disagree with you? And all of a sudden, all the things that you thought were good about your idea are getting challenged and tarnished and destroyed and beaten every which way. And all of a sudden, what the ideas you had absolute certainty in start to look not so strong in, in your mind anymore, which is what I always like. Because I, I want a situation where whatever idea you think is good, it has to get beaten. Uh, it, it really has to go through a, a gauntlet of, of, of various people challenging it, which is what I think the, the libertarians tend to love the idea of the markets because the markets is literally where the rubber meets the road in a sense. Like you say, okay, you want something you think is a good idea? Okay, build it, put it out, and let's see who pays for it because that's the best way to, to determine the value that you've generated because we're going to take all the possible spaces of vectors of, 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 oh, it saves you time and it makes you this, that. Oh, great. Collapse it down to one, one, one dimension, which is, is somebody willing to pay money for this hard-earned money that they spent hours slaving over a hot stove cooking french fries or a, uh, a person who swept the floors or somebody who wrote code for 15 hours and, and, and has a massive migraine? Are they going to translate all that effort into some money that's going to go to your pocket for this particular product that you've put together? And if the answer to that is no, then it won't survive. But if the answer to that is yes, it still doesn't mean it will survive. It just means it'll survive for today and hopefully tomorrow. You improve upon it because you create a feedback loop into that product where you're listening to your, con uh, uh, your your customers and you're actually making amendments to make that product better and you're going to put up a version 2 and a version 3 and hopefully that's what's going to allow you to create a sustainable business. Whereas government is the exact opposite. There's no iterative process. There is no iterative sure. process, exactly. And, 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 and the thing that we, we, you know, we, we come away with uh, with the libertarian circles is it's not you don't learn by um, uh, with time. You learn with iteration. An iteration, every iteration is a test against reality, right? So you take a set of assumptions, you put it into practice, and reality checks you. And the further you get away from iteration, the further you get away from reality, the worse the pain is going to come when a correction does come your way. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, definitely. But I, I think you should, you, the, there's a notion of scale that needs to be put up for this, right? Because say in your family, right, if you're on the scale of your own family, you don't want a republic in your own family. You don't want your no. kids to have a vote on, you know, whether they should go to school or not. So, of course. But in the case of, say, the federal government of the United States, because it has so much potential to do damage, there, 
I remember a um, an address by uh, J- Justice Scalia in uh, during uh, in front of the Judiciary Committee where he was talking about this same topic of a separation of power, et cetera, where he basically said that whenever he goes out to Europe and just uh, explains the American system to European uh, legislators and universities, et cetera, and says that, you know, you know, a bill can pass to one house, goes to the next, gets amended, needs to go back to the other house, et cetera. The Europeans usually call that gridlock. But that's and that that's exactly the point of the system. It's by right. design. Right. Because the whole point, the, the founders created all these institutions to prevent uh, an excess of legislation. The whole, there was never an, an idea of. Uh, and I remember that he says specifically that, um, so uh, Hamilton in uh, Federalist, uh, I think it was uh, 63 or so, where he talks about, or 48, uh, where he says that, you know, um, we, we, we want to prevent uh, an excess of legislation. But at the time he was, you know, it was, it was right after the American Revolution, they had no idea what an excess of legislation was. Look at us today, right? Where there's right. hundreds of thousands of federal laws, et cetera. So the the point stands even more so today yeah no and and to build up on your previous point um uh people talk about that example and they kind of give you the whole you know in your household you wouldn't let your kids vote what to have for breakfast because it'll always be ice cream and i say yeah that's true but here's the thing right when when people vote they're actually adults already so if you want to take that same analogy and apply it to people you're kind of infantilizing them and and, and that's a, a line i don't want to cross right because i, I want to say to people look you, you're free to do whatever it is you want to do there's only two conditions to that. One, you can't bring harm to others. Two, you can't pass off the cost of whatever benefit you want, even if the benefit is for others, to come from other people. So in a sense, like uh, obviously, we don't want you to uh, you know, take your car and go for a joyride and slam it into people's homes, obviously, because you're bringing harm to others. But at the same time, we don't want you to say, you know what, I'm going to build a charity to, to, to eradicate, uh, I don't know, uh, homelessness, which is great, but at the expense that I'm going to take 90% of everybody's income. There, there again, you're passing off the cost of, of whatever perceived benefit it is you're trying to pursue. So when, when that conversation comes up, because that's always the, the, the objection to, to the libertarian mindset, which is that we don't want, you know, voting always doesn't count. And I always tell people, I'm like, it's funny, people only say that when their side loses. Right. So I remember when people say things and I'll give you a clear cut example, a clear cut example in my mind is as follows. I remember earlier in the days when um, uh, the whole uh, gay marriage thing was an issue. Right. So so people would say, OK, look, um, we want to have a vote on this because everybody uh, who are pro uh, gay marriage wanted to say that it's a good thing. So let's have a vote. And they had a vote, and the vote turned out to be that not everybody wants gay marriage. So then they got upset about it. They said, hey, you know what? When everybody votes, it always goes the wrong way. Let's do a different route. Let's go and, and, and see if we can uh, get this set of ideas accepted and passed uh, a different way. And they did that. And everybody was like, okay, so now that you've done this, you've basically overridden our vote. Because there, there was a bill, I remember when Obama was running, I think it was Bill 8 yeah. or C-something. I can't remember the exact one. But you recall what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, it went up to the Supreme Court and then they, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so, so it always is the case, which is that you like every system until it goes against you. And, and uh, for me, I personally, uh, my, my take on, on, on personal, uh, people's personal uh, lives, I'm always like, hey, man, do whatever it is you want to do. I have absolutely no problem with you engaging um, with other people in a voluntary, consensual manner to pursue happiness for both yourself and the other person. As long as, like I said, there's no harm to others, go for it, right? So, so in that sense, it's not like I'm taking a hard position on this. I'm just looking at that as an example of people love a system when it goes in their favor and hate a system when it goes against them. And it ties back into the new conversation that we're going to have about, you know, social media and their need to go and, quote unquote, police free speech. 
and the people who are advocating this uh, want more government power to you know uh, get involved and 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 stop quote unquote fake news and tell Facebook and Google and and Twitter to stop all this stuff. And I'm always reminded of uh, Naval Ravikant's quote, which is like, whatever system you want to build, hand the keys to your enemies for a test drive. And if you still like it, go ahead, run with it, right? And that's the part people always forget, which is that whatever you think is a good idea, first of all, assume it's a good idea until you give it to your opponents, right? And and not forget your opponents, give it to your enemies. Let them see how, uh, watch how they, they interpret and implement it. And if you still think it's a good idea, then, then, then we can really have a conversation because now you have skin in the game, so to speak. Whereas if it's, it's a good idea in my head and my friends agree with me and my party agrees with me and we should go, for, go ahead and do it. And if you don't agree with that, you are a, you know, something cis, right? Racist, misogynist, fascist, uh, something cis. Go for it. Add the label to it. And so I think that's what's missing from the conversation. So I want to bring that back around because how does the uh, uh, French political system reflect what's happening in social media? What's, what's happening there? Yeah, so it's it's not even just in France; it's all across Europe that um, we are we we already have uh, laws restricting hate speech all across Europe. It's it, there's EU directives about it. Almost all the UK government, especially, has pretty uh, strict hate speech laws. Sweden does as well, and all this stuff really it just makes me concerned and 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 it makes me uh, long even more for uh, the uh, American approach where. Um, Everyone's free speech is guaranteed. And so regardless of whether I agree or not with your speech, it, it doesn't matter. You're allowed to speak. And that's and that's how um, a healthy society is created, in my opinion, because hate speech is a completely relative term. People are that's... not going to like it when, say, Marine Le Pen gets into power in France and she has the power over those laws. People are not going to be happy. And so... You really need to be extremely careful when you um, enact laws like this. Yeah, so the, so the, the follow-up question on that front is simple. Uh, how are they defining this, and what is the level of consistency between how each of these countries defines what hate speech is, uh, what constitutes hate speech? It's absolutely none. It, it varies from, you know, um, whatever uh, offends somebody or whatever constitutes uh uh, incitement to hatred in France, for example. Uh, I remember in the UK that um, uh, a YouTuber account, Dankula, he he was um, prosecuted in Scotland for uh, uh, uploading a, a video of a pug uh, doing a nasty salute. Like it, it, it gets completely ridiculous. In Sweden, I rem- I think uh, in the first of January they updated a law uh, for uh, classifying uh, uh, basically almost. For specifically for transgender issues, that uh, you know, if if you if you say um, anything that uh, could be considered hatred against transgenders, that's mm-hmm. basically illegal under the law in Sweden. Uh, so it sounds like the, they're they're rewriting the uh, the Newspeak dictionary over there. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. So so how pervasive is it? Is it is it noticeable? Is it just slowly creeping up? Are people starting to take notice? Is it or is it just a case of frogs sitting in boiling water? So. Um, I feel like you're going to see these little events, like, for example, Count Dankula in the UK, where, you know, a lot of people are going to be concerned and just tell themselves, hey, how come this guy's going to jail for making a joke? But a lot of the time, it's just it's just it's just framed in such a um, 
uh, an, an aspect of, say, compassion that a lot of people are like, oh, well, you know, I, we wouldn't want to offend this group of people or that group of people. So I guess this is a good thing. But they don't see the ramifications. And and it's a, it's 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 because European countries are so old, they haven't gone through uh, what the U.S. founders did. Like the First Amendment, it, it wasn't just a thing they came up with. They had literally just fought a revolutionary war against a tyrannical government. That's why these things were in place. We, Europe does not have that experience. No, I agree with that on, on, on the you know on the whole of it because for me, uh, like the United States is the only country that I know of that actually enshrines free speech into their constitution as, as their, their their government's mandate for their for their for their for their people is to say that whatever ideas you have, however repugnant and, and repellent they may be, we cannot and ever will not take away your right to say so. And and and, and the fact that this conversation keeps getting reborn every generation or every political cycle now that it's getting shorter and shorter is, is astonishing to me because I'm like, okay, I noticed this conversation comes up from people um, uh, in countries where they're allowed to do these things. Like, for example, where I come from in Afghanistan, if you engage uh, in, in political commentary just a, a handful of years ago, not even, not even a generation ago, there is a very good likelihood that you would be disappeared. And, and I mean that in the literal sense where they would, you know, I had an uncle. Um, when, the, when the communists came into to power in, in Afghanistan, uh, one of my uncles disappeared. We still don't know where he is. We don't, obviously, we assume he's been um, you know, murdered, but we don't even know where, where, where they buried him. We don't even know if they threw him in a ditch. We don't know what they did to him. We don't know anything about it. Why? Because, and he was perceived as a threat. He wasn't even a threat. The, the, the reason he was perceived as a threat was he was Western educated, and he, was, he came back to, to Afghanistan. And at the time when the communists came into power, um, they just said, oh, uh, here's a list. And I'm always weary of lists. That's why sometimes when there's a list going around Twitter, yep. I'm always a little bit shy on that. I'm like, I don't want to add any names to that list. And if I see my name, I tend to, tend to ask people, would you mind removing me from that list? And it has nothing to do with a personal, um, you know, uh, distaste for the person doing it. It's more of about like, I, I see how lists work, right? Lists are very interesting things. Lists for me are a compression algorithm. It's like, here's a list of people you should hate. Whether you think they're good or not, it, this, this is what it's going to eventually turn into. And so my uncle basically disappeared. Um, I've had other uh, friends and family members who, uh, you know, explained these stories to me where it's like, yeah, uh, you know, we, you know, a family of farmers saved a lot of money to, to send their child to go to the United States to get educated. And they were so proud and happy when he came back and, and he got a job as a, as a minister or he got a job as a, you know, uh, back those days, there was no real free enterprise to go around. So any good job that you would get would be in the government. And as soon as the communists came to power, the first thing they did was they said, whoever's been Western educated, Let's go. It's time to remove them, right? And so these, these, these ideas are always shunned by the people who have no idea what it's like if you lived in the opposite system, right? So I always tell them, like, look, you may not like Trump. A lot of people don't. But here's the thing that's interesting about it. Every single president that ever runs uh, for office and becomes president is instantaneously Hitler. Obama was Hitler. <laughs> Bush was Hitler. Trump is Hitler. Everybody's Hitler except for actual Hitler, right? So, so the the opposition always gets to write the meanest, nastiest things they want. They can make, uh, you know, I think there was a rapper who made a, a, a sexually suggestive video. His name is Ti, I believe, about Melania Trump. He kind of got like this girl that looks like her, and he was pretending like he was going to uh, act out his uh, fantasies against her, just as a shot against the president. And I'm like, you know what? The fact that you're able to do that and the fact that nobody says anything to you is such a blessing. You have no idea. Because if you did that, anything remotely to that, like if you go to, you know, let's not even go to North Korea. Let's go to some other countries 
you know, let's just talk about uh, Venezuela, right? They're, they're not as bad as North Korea, but they're pretty, pretty much close to it. If you remotely spoke about uh, Maduro's family in that way, or let, let's go to Russia, let's go to China, right? Uh, you, you got a person who literally just said, hey, I am not president for life, and I will dictate the terms of this country for a billion people. I mean, talk about the asymmetrical um, disconnect from reality, right? Here's a person who's going to be making decisions for a billion people. And anybody who's afraid of, of China becoming a superpower, I always remind them, I'm like, look, uh, this is Nassim Taleb's world, right? If you, there, there, are two, there are two types of people in this world. There are those who understand the carpenter's fallacy and those who don't. And if you've read Nassim and you understand complexity and you understand antifragility, you will realize very quickly what the flaw of having a person in charge of a billion people's lives. And, 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 and these systems that are built like that are so dangerous. And they may look good, like they may look like they're going in the right direction at first, but that's because they're covering up all the errors by pretending they don't exist, right? So that's sort of my take on that particular issue in terms of how people are very easily dismissive of the blessings that they've inherited, which is that you can go, you, right now I could go stand outside and, 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 and mock the, the Prime Minister of Canada to no end until I lose my voice. I can make banners, I can make t-shirts, I can you know, uh, uh, set up my own little corner, I can set up a website, I can do all these things. And that's okay, it's allowed. And, and that's, a, that's a very precious thing that people take for granted. Definitely. It's, it's, it's mostly because of uh, complacency and, and just people take for granted a lot of the freedoms that they have. And I, I actually think that we're going to see a lot. So a, a lot of people from um, the, the Middle East, the Near East, Asia, they, they, they go to Western countries to get educated and to benefit from these, um, uh, these privileges, right? And I actually think that at some point we're going to see a lot of people leave Europe um, and, and try to go to the U.S. to be able to actually speak. It's not going to happen now, but probably in the near future that, that sort of phenomenon is going to happen because it's going to get to a point where it's going to be very strict. Yeah, and, and, and you know, so let, let's tie this back into to, uh, technology because, um, you know, you, you and I are both uh, in, in that business. So here's what's interesting, right? So you got social media, which is, quote-unquote, a private public space, so to speak. It's, it's, it's not really private in the sense because you don't pay for it. So if I use Facebook or Twitter or YouTube, I'm fully cognizant of the fact that I'm using a service that is free, the service that gives me leverage to uh, express ideas and thoughts and bring on people to have interesting conversations with yourself and have that spread out all over the world instantaneously for free. But at the same time, it's not like it's completely free because there's a cost associated to it, which is the hidden costs, right? So the whole idea of censorship and it's like, well, you know, it's a private company and we can choose what we will and will not allow on our platform. And, and, and where do you fall on that particular debate? Because I think that's a very interesting area of discussion because there's nothing like this has ever existed, right? We've never had a, a free press that gives you um, two to the end power uh, distribution channels for an, an individual person. So how do you see all that uh, uh, playing out? What are your thoughts on that particular front? So I think that we have to tread very lightly because there's, there's always been throughout history, right? These uh, sort of either areas or public spaces where people were allowed to speak. So in Greece, for example, you'd find like the agoras, right? Where people would, would come in and, and, and speak and give speeches. In, uh, in Rome, you would have the forum where people would conduct business, etc. So nowadays, it's kind of the same thing. Our, our little, you know, here, Twitter space or Facebook space here and there, it's kind of the same thing. It's the, the public space and platform where people are able to exchange ideas. Now, 
just because just because there's a tendency from those services to block out people they don't agree with doesn't mean we should um go ahead through with the quick and easy solution of saying hey let's regulate them because i think that's a that's a slippery slope um the I, i'm sure there's there's multiple other ways that can be that, that we can use to do this now so, some people say hey even if you create your own service right say for example for uh, gab and twitter uh gab created their own um uh twitter clone right and yep. th they they were met with with constant um obstacles they, their cdns were taken down just they, they, it's just extremely hard nowadays because the internet's supposed to be a very decentralized platform that that was the whole point of the world wide web just a lot of uh, spaces hyperlinked with each other. Whereas now, really, there's only five big websites that people go to. Um, and, and, and so because of that, it gets very hard for uh, a little person to just go ahead and create their own thing, which is actually why I think it's it's a bit dangerous. I'm not sure how aware you are of this, but like, you know, the net neutrality debates in the US, etc. Yeah. Yeah, so they're, they're framed in, in a way where, uh, so, if we pass net neutrality laws, all traffic is equal, et cetera. But I actually think that that makes it harder for uh, smaller people to to create their 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 own um, their own spaces because then they have to they have to comply with this regulation, that regulation, et cetera. It's like in Europe right now, it's almost impossible for um, s someone to come up with startups like in the US because of like so many big regulations like GDPR, et cetera. You have to have a team of lawyers for almost everything. It's, of course. it's so, but so I, I, I don't really know where the solution lie lies. I, I don't think we should straight up say, Hey, uh, Twitter, you, you've now been nationalized that, 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 that cannot happen for, for several obvious reasons. But I think that at the end of the day, the, the easiest debate that we can open on this is that Twitter, Facebook, all these platforms, they claim to be public platforms. Now, the thing about a public platform is that you, you do benefit from the fact that you're not accountable for what your users post. But if you only pretend to be a public platform and you're actually curating content, then you're actually a publisher and then you need to be regulated just like the news corporations, et cetera. So I think that's the way the debate should go. Yeah, I agree with you in there, uh, but I will want to bring up a couple of disagreements with you on that particular front. And I think the first one is just a myth that I'm, I'm kind of uh, always hearing, which is that this idea that the government, or sorry, that the internet is supposed to be this uh, uh, utopia of decentralization. I think it's actually the exact opposite, and I'll tell you why. Um, when initially the, the ARPANET was created, it was created by the government, for the government, to fight off another government, right? Because what they really wanted to do was to have satellite relays tracking any potential missiles shot in their direction from the from the then uh, Soviet Russia. So it was never really meant to be decentralized in that regard. It was meant to be a decentralized, centralized location. What I mean by that is the central government gets information about uh, what's happening from decentralized nodes, but it's all under the central control. And that's where people start to sort of lose the plot, which is that, look, yes, ideally, that's what it sounds like. And every person I hear making that argument tends to be somebody who got wealthy off these set of ideas and now regrets it. And so I hear them all the time on, on, on various podcasts and on various uh, uh, blog posts. They say, oh, you know, when we were thinking of the internet back in the heyday, we were all so happy that this was going to empower all these people. And now we've got these quote unquote siren servers that are set up and, you know, they're just sucking all the money and value out of other people's lives while they're enriching themselves and disconnecting themselves from reality. I'm like, listen, 
first of all, you benefited from all that. And now if you're going to give me the violin song on how sad that's turned out to be, I'm sorry if I don't take your word at it, right? I, I look at what you say and I, and I kind of think about that and I say, look, you, you missed the boat. You benefited from this heavily. And now that you've benefited from it, you want to flip the script. Yeah, so, definitely. <laughs> you know which what I mean? Is why, so, which is why I'm extremely wary when, say, you know, whenever there's these net neutrality debates, you, you always see the same actors come out and start lobbying for all these things like Reddit, Facebook, Google, all these big, big, big platforms that claim that, oh, we just want to open the internet. We just want to give everyone a chance. It's just very fishy. And, but, but yeah, definitely people don't realize that um, almost all of the root DNS servers are owned by the U.S. government or, you know, public uh, universities, et cetera. And, and, and it's really, it, it's the same thing as say um, GPS, for example, right? So GPS yep. is, is pretty much paid by the taxpayer. It's, it's yep. a, it's a department of defense project that's made available for everyone. Mm -hmm. And, it should it should kind of be treated the same way, which is also why when people say that um, everyone should have equal access to, you know, the, the the lanes and the internet or whatever, they don't realize as well. Like we take so many things for granted. They don't realize that bandwidth is not infinite. Exactly. Exactly. You know uh, that 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 argument. You know, because I always bring this out to them. I say, okay, let's let's take a look at this and say you want to regulate. Uh, and it's funny. There's a there's a guy who. Uh, who created Stack Overflow? I'm trying to remember his name. Um, uh, I think it's Joel Spolsky. No, I'm not. It's not Joel. It's Jeffrey something. Uh, either way, I get the names confused. I apologize to the listeners, but he came on and he was um, basically talking about how uh, searches that were being done are generating fake news and how Twitter should do this and Twitter should do that. And 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 the conversation was revolving around regulating these kind of ideas. And I said, okay. And I asked him. I said, okay. Uh, what if there's a software engineer working on Gab and he asks a question on Stack Overflow? Are you going to go and say, oh, well, this question can't be answered because this guy works for a particular company whose views we don't agree with. And therefore, regardless of the merits of the technical conversation, we don't want these guys getting answers, right? Because that's not a very far step. Once you've made the step that you can't say something on Twitter, it's not a very far step to say engineers working on Gab can't ask questions on Stack Overflow, which oh, is not a very... We've, yeah. we've already seen some many phenomenons of this happening. I don't know if you, you if you've been um, uh, following what's going on with the um, uh, Linux kernel right now, but like it's, it's things like uh, you know the co contribution codes that are being posted, where uh, if somebody has you know uh, un unpopular uh, personal views or whatever, they get kicked off the projects. Or say, um, for example, I remember that Python or or, or, or plugin for uh, that was made in Python was. Um, hijacked basically by social activists and they they changed all mentions of you know master slave concepts to other words because they weren't politically acceptable it just all, all of this is just getting to a point where you know we live in a clown world almost it's just <laughs> yeah you know what the, the oldest joke uh for me whenever uh, i walk into these situations is i'm like I, I see jokers on the left and clowns on the right and i don't know what, what what's worse because because these people who are uh focused on these ideas and i'm like okay i get what you're trying to say you're going about it so the wrong way that you're rubbing off everybody the wrong, uh, in the worst possible light. You're grading their, their, their sense of sensibilities, right? They don't want to even be your ally because of the way you're approaching these ideas. And so I'm noticing this. And I look at it and I say, okay, to get back to the previous point, now that you've got Stack Overflow limiting people, uh, if you can, like let's just say you start with Twitter, go to Stack Overflow. The next logical step is, oh, and we're seeing this already, banks will say, oh, we don't agree with this guy's opinion. His bank account is quote-unquote closed or he can't accept 
uh, payments through uh, uh, through Patreon. Okay, cool. Yeah, I think uh, Visa and Mastercard have actually already done this. They've, right, they've and Chase, Chase has done this. Yeah, yeah. Chase has it's, done this. It's very scary. It's just insane. Like, yeah, you you have your bank that's supposed to be, you know, just uh, an organization that manages your payment, just block you yeah. for your political opinions. It's just insane. That, that, and then the other aspect of that is okay. So what what's next? Well, GPS stops working for you. Why? Oh, we don't want you to get to that rally where you're going to discuss these ideas. It's not very far fetched, right? Because you're okay. Let's identify this guy's number. We know it is, we already shut out on his bank account. Let's go and uh, talk to the cell provider. I know they, they're, they're next on the list. Hey, uh, these people shouldn't really be able to talk on the phone. They shouldn't be able to send text messages. They shouldn't be able to do Google searches. We should basically shun them. And I'm like, see, this, this goes down a slippery slope so fast and so uh, dangerously that you have no idea what it is you're creating for yourself here. So in essence, you do need this. This is why uh, I, I'm a free speech absolutist. And, and a lot of people don't like that position. And I will take that position. Because uh, for me, I've seen what happens when free speech is even slightly limited. Because that, that limitation is the chip. And that's when they start to, 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 to hack away at whatever it is you want to do next, right? And I always tell people, I'm like, look, man, regardless of what justifications you may or may not have, there's, this is the one thing I can't sub, uh, submit to you. Once I give you this... And I give you some provision where this is acceptable. That's it. I'm, I'm basically uh, off the rails at that point because I don't know what you're going to chip away at next. Because there's always a justification that you can give. This was the reason why earlier in the uh, war on terror, the, the the conversation around torture was always this straw man argument that oh, we have a guy, there's a bomb about to go off, and we need to torture his two year old son so he can tell us where the bomb is. Right? I'm like, okay. First of all, how often does that actually happen? Second of all, if that's your only route to getting answers to this, all the other apparatuses that have been set up and constructed with the hundreds of billions of dollars, trillions of dollars at this point, are basically useless. And the only the only answer we have is grab this guy's two-year-old baby, pull his toenails off so he can tell us where the bomb is. Like, come on. You, you get to a point where you're now just basically making yourself, uh, you're, you're asking to be utterly mocked and derided for this particular position you want to take, right? That's what it, it kind of... Yeah, it was a response, basically, to uh, so after 9/11, you know, they enacted the Patriot Act and everything, and and a lot of people were left thinking, well, you know, we're we're paying all these intelligence agencies, like, what were they doing? Yeah, yeah exactly. Why that... do they need more consolidation, more centralization, more money? Like, what, what's going on here? If you look at the UK, it's it's basically it's it's a police state. It's it's got more CCTV cameras. I think there's more CCTV cameras in just in the city of London than almost any other country in the world, and and yet. How many times have you heard of you know someone who's who got his laptop stolen and then they finally got through CCTV? That never happens. <laughs> exactly, and and you know what's funny about that? Again, this goes back to to Nassim's world, right? He talked about the concept of um, the curse of dimensionality, right? The more vectors you're trying to measure, the more noise you're going to actually generate. So all this extra capacity that you're asking for is actually just going to generate more false positives for you. And that's the sad fact of it. And if you don't recognize that uh, reality and you don't see that happening, then you are going to be very uh, heavily disappointed in the results you attain. Because all these systems you're putting up, all this machine learning and all this uh, uh, data analysis and all this big data and all this modeling stuff you're doing, you're starting to see that there's, 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 a, there's a trade-off point. There's no infinite benefit that comes from collecting as much data as humanly possible. And I think that transition is, is also taking place if you watch the last Google I.O. Uh, where they're talking about bringing machine learning from the cloud of Google's uh, data uh, environment onto the device itself. And they're trying to shift their policy towards more privacy concerned. I think they're starting to realize this fact that more data doesn't necessarily mean more signal. In fact, almost always the case is that more data means more noise. 
So let's try to find a way to say, okay, there is, there's a reason why the human brain and there's a reason why the way we operate is that we dismiss a lot of, of, uh, of signal that comes into the brain and we just process what's necessary. If I'm crossing the road, I don't care about what color the hat of the driver is. I care if there's a driver coming in my direction, right? So that's the signal I'm interested in. But if you sit there and, and you just said, okay, open a camera, get me, uh, you know, 8K, uh, 60 frames or 120 frames per second and record everything for this robot that's going to cross the road, great. But you're going to be out processing all this information. But the only thing you really need to process is their car coming my way. If not, I can continue to walk, right? The rest of it's just noise. And, and I think these, these intelligence uh, agencies and these political uh, parties that are actually pursuing these ideas who just want to collect and collect and collect are starting to realize this fact that a lot of it's noise. You don't need it. You could get away with a lot less. And in fact, it's much more effective because the information you're procuring is useful information. So it's better to know what not to look for as opposed to look for everything and try to find what's necessarily important. Yeah, I think I, I saw something about that in the UK a while ago where they were testing out um, facial recognition on some CCTV cameras. And they said that, you know, I think the the success rate was like 96% or something. But, I mean, that's kind of outrageous because... You know, you're, you're, you're getting all this data that you, I mean, do you really know what you're doing with all the data and those 4%, I mean, yeah, those 4% that are left over the entire population of say, I don't know, just the city of London, that's a lot of people that get brought in for questioning or whatever, when they haven't done anything. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. It's yeah. Gross violation of individual civil liberties. Oh, of course. And, and what's funny about that is you can actually tie this back into math. And, I, and I'll give you an example of how I uh, pursue these ideas. And it kind of ties into, um, uh, you know, how I purchase my technical, technical uh, devices that I go for. So I'll give you an example. So uh, audio systems, right? I, I'm a, I love music to, like, to, 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 to no end. I, I can't even describe how much I love music. So for me, investing in a, a nice, high-quality audio system is, a, is, a, is an investment I'm willing to make. A lot of people don't want to make it. They're like, oh, just buy the headphones that cost $10 on the, in the airport uh, gift shop, and it's fine. And I'm like, eh, no, that's not for me. But here's what actually happens. You can invest in a really, really nice audio system that will get you from 0 to 90% fidelity of the actual recording for a reasonable price. And for me, a reasonable price is always, it's not the price I paid, but it's the value I extract from it. So it's how many hours of music am I listening to on a day-to-day -day basis versus how much does my system cost. So my audio system... It was a couple of speakers that cost about $750, which is a bit extravagant for most. But again, for me, it's, it's, it's perfectly reasonable. And a, uh, a digital audio uh, converter uh, that costs about mm, 600 bucks. I think it was about 600 bucks. It was a sale on time. So I grabbed that and I said, okay, this is going to be connected and I'm going to listen to my audio at the highest bandwidth I can, I can consume. Fantastic. So total price less than two grand. Uh, listening to music roughly, you know, six seven hours a day. Divide that by the the price. You can, it easily pays for itself very quickly. That's cool. Ninety percent of the way there for a small price to pay. Here's where it gets interesting. When you go from ninety percent fidelity to ninety one or to ninety two or to ninety eight, the cost exponentially goes up. So to go from ninety percent to like ninety five, you're probably paying north of twelve thousand dollars easily. And if you want to go from 95 to like 99, there are speaker systems that will cost you like a million dollars, right? And, and, and it's like, okay, see what's happening here? You can get away with a, a lot of quality for not paying that much. But then there's a zone where if you want to go higher, the price you're going to have to pay for that incremental 1% improvement is so much more uh, uh, than you could possibly imagine that the value that it brings back for you is negative instantaneously, right? That's why you, uh, uh, you know, that's what I think Apple's brilliant strategy is whenever they do something, they solve a problem for 90% of the uh, to people 
90% of the way at uh, at the lowest cost. So if you look at the, the the HomePod system, for example, that they have, a lot of people panned on it, you know, this, that, and the other. So, okay, look, I've listened to this thing. And here's what I could tell you about it. It gets you there. 90% of the way is there. It's easy for 90% of the people to use. And it's, at, it's, it's very cheap compared to what you would have to pay if you wanted this kind of quality audio in your home. Yeah, that's so, very true because right. um, so I mean, we're we're probably about to get called Apple shills, but so um, I remember when a lot of people made fun of the AirPods, and um, I, I I actually love audiophile equipment. I'm 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 calling right now with a Audio Technica ADH uh, M40X, right? Right. But but I still got AirPods because they were so convenient, and I think it's one of the best Apple products. Uh, I've bought yet because the sound quality isn't incredible, but for Bluetooth earphones, they're very nice. They're convenient. They get me there during the day. So I definitely think that their strategy is 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 uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, and and if you if you think about that, and and and, and you know, this ties back to all the other stuff we talked about. If you think about Apple Pay, right? Simple, stupid, simple solution to a very complex problem. Right, and they hide all that complexity behind yep. double tapping your finger or wiping, uh, looking at your uh, your face, or if it's on your watch, just double tapping on the side. And again, ninety percent of the people will enjoy it for ninety percent of the cases at a reduction of cost because the amount of fraud they prevent because that, and I think the way they 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 came to the arrangement with their with the banks and whatnot is that if you use the system, it helps you. Uh, reduce fraud by like X percent, and that cost that you're be- benefiting from for reducing uh, the fraud, we want a cut of that. So that way, the customer who's using our product isn't paying for this, and you aren't paying for this. We're just taking the money that we found for you, i.e., the fraud we prevented, and that's where we want to get our cut. And so I think that same strategy, that same idea, applies to uh, governance. It applies to collecting intelligence. It's like, okay, what can we do that's reasonable that we can get 90% of the way there? Yes, and I know it's it's one of those situations where um, that one instance that you missed will be catastrophic because it always happens to be the case. Because this is one of those asymmetric situations where when you're playing defense and you're trying to prevent a terrorist attack or, 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 or any kind of uh, damage to the country, you have to be 100% right because you can't be 99% of the time right because the, the people who are attacking, you just have to get it right once. But losing sight of that and saying, well, let's just turn everything into a police state to combat this problem it's still not going to get you there. That's what's ironic about it, right? You can say, yeah, you know what, Ace? Yeah, you're right. Um, uh, it's you know, I, I remember this conversation that Nassim uh, was posting about how uh, you, if you want to compare Ebola versus lightning strikes, and people always post this idea. It's like, oh, you, wanna, you care about people's lives. You should be more interested in, 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 in blood pressure uh, and heart disease because of the junk food they eat versus the Ebola cause. And, and Nassim's like, look, man, here's what you need to understand about that. First of all, people are willingly consuming this food, and the, and, and the... the the period from when they consume to when they actually get these diseases is very long and protracted and they can intervene on multiple steps before they kill themselves. And therefore, it's, it's one thing. But an Ebola virus that a terrorist can grab and actually can go and, and, and do mass damage with, those are not the same things, right? Clearly, if you, if you came back to, and, and you said, okay, uh, you know, we just had half the population of the planet get wiped off, what, what, what are your bets? Was it, was it hamburgers and french fries or was it an Ebola outbreak? You clearly know which one is going to be the one, right? Because if half, half the population gets wiped out, we're pretty sure it's going to be something at the level of an Ebola. And so based on that particular set of reasonings, then you could say, okay, if, if you want to play defense and you want to prevent all these things, then we want to invest a lot of money into these infrastructures for the NSA, the FBI, the CIA, the uh, whatever the, the various uh, three-letter acronyms are across the world. It's a great. Put all that money in and try to get 90% of it right. 
but then that one percent that gets through is what's going to come back to you and the and the people who are hawks on one side are usually the conservative types so we want more regulation uh, more government uh you know powers to to combat these particular uh threats against the nation what you're going to end up with is you're going to say okay for the fact that this is one of those scenarios where if you want to get higher than 90 percent, you have to do more what you're going to really do is you're going to lose a lot of the freedoms in exchange for uh, getting slightly better and not even 99% because you won't get to 99%. I've had conversations with people who are security experts uh, uh, you know, in the intelligence communities and they tell you like, hey man, no matter how good it is, there's always something that you never thought of. And that's what these people do. You know, If somebody wants to attack, they're gonna think of things you never thought of. And that's by definition how they win, right? And so the trade-off to make on that particular front is more data doesn't necessarily mean more uh, accuracy. More data does not necessarily mean uh, more benefits, and companies are starting to realize this too. They don't want to store as much customer data. They don't want to store all these uh, passwords and credit cards and social insurance numbers. And, and I think we're going to that world where every transaction is going to have announced where it's going to be just a one-time, you know, random generated credit card, quote-unquote, number associated. So even if it's stolen, it doesn't really matter uh, because people are starting to realize this, that you don't want to store all this. All this information is toxic. The more of it you hold, the more of it you're going to be accountable for. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, definitely. It's it's basically it's exactly why I, I, I just firmly refuse to have any of these, you know, uh, Alexa, Google Assistant, whatever things in my house. It just it just makes no sense. One hundred percent agree. I and, and I will say this now because we were going to be called Apple shows. I'll say this on the record. And I've been saying it since day one. I think Siri is a flaming dumpster fire and I would be happy to pay for a version of iOS or Mac OS without Siri. And and I say that, and you know, it's it's one of the worst uh, things that Apple's ever produced. And like you said, I love the AirPods. I have my own. But man, Siri, oh, so terrible. Alexa, Google, not even close. Like there, there's, you're not even going to be, you can't even come into my, uh, uh, you know, near my building, let alone into my house with that stuff. Yeah, it's just, it, it's just, it's always, you always think about like, how could this destroy me, right? If you if you look at Alexa and and uh, with Amazon, right? They always say that oh yeah, you know your your data is in our servers. You know we're collecting all this stuff. It's all anonymized. It's fine. But when a data breach happens, which has happened already, it has disastrous consequences. You have you have you have like insanities like uh, the the dump that happened like a month ago, where they said that you know they routinely listen to some of the uh, recordings for uh, you know. Uh, usability and to improve the analytics etc it's just like when those things do happen they'll be disastrous it's exactly why uh, I, I posted a tweet yesterday saying that um, I'm very scared of those password managers right because like now everyone has this one service one password and it just manages all of their accounts it's so much simpler so much more effective it's so convenient but when a data breach happens for one of these things even though the data is encrypted, everyone's going to lose access to their accounts. Mm -hmm. It's it's just you. It's a disaster to, waiting to happen. Yeah, you you always have to think about the, this technology. Mm -hmm. How it it is making my life easier, but yep. what is the trade off? At what point do I realize, hey, if this goes down, I'm screwed. Yeah. No, I know what I, I I'll. I'll because uh, as soon as you start talking on that front, like I, I had 8,000 things go through my head. So I'll just uh, spill some of them out here for, for food for thought. So first thing that was scary for me is, um, uh, you know, every eight to 10 years or so, I buy a new TV, right? Because it's like, okay, it's time to get an upgrade because the old one's color's flickering or whatever. So I bought this uh, Sony 4K TV. 
And I was horrified to find that it's embedded with Android. And the first thing it asks for is a network connection. And when you're setting it up, the first thing it tells you is, by the way, uh, please be mindful of the conversations you're having in the room with this because it's going to record all of it. And I'm like, are you serious? Like that, that's the first thing you want to do. So I made sure I went in and I said, okay, you know, there's nothing connected to this device. There's no internet that's going to be provided to this device. I don't want any of this information because imagine the fact that you're being told that in the living room of your house where you can have some of the most intimate and private, sad, uh, you know, conversations about your most, uh, the worst things that happen to you tend to be uh, discussions you have in your living room. And I'm going to invite a corporation, which is going to embed a piece of software from another corporation to just listen into my conversation. Are you mad? Look, what are you smoking? What, on what planet would this be acceptable? So I actually went back and I said, hey, is there a version of this TV without this particular piece of software in it? Because I don't need my TV to be smart. Thank you very much. I don't want my TV 3D and I definitely don't want my TV smart. Much to my chagrin, there was no option. So I did have to take uh, extreme measures to uh, make sure that, that that TV was not connected. And I'm still slightly weary of it because, like I said, I don't know what is going on inside of it. And I would never know because, obviously, I'd have to go in and invest more time than is necessary. But it's, uh, you know, my, my Wi-Fi passwords are, you know, a little bit bigger and longer just so that I don't have anything. Because sometimes, you know, people come and, they, oh, I want to watch Netflix. Oh, let me, let me go on your Wi-Fi. It's not on. I'm like, hey, listen, connect to the Apple TV. It'll get you there. I don't want the system to, to be communicating with that. But it goes back to the other conversation with regards to passwords, right? So I've always looked at this problem, and, 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 I, and I started to look at it from the point of view of, of, of the following. I don't put a strong password. I'm putting myself at risk. I put a strong password, and like you said, if um, uh, these systems that are encrypted, and that's what they offer me, right? They say, hey, we'll encrypt your password. There's a key exchange that happens. Like There's three key exchanges that happen, I think, with, with uh, one password before anything gets stored on their, their server. So even if somebody does breach, it's a bunch of encrypted device uh, uh, passwords. Great. But you know what's really interesting about that? There's a side consequence of this, which is as follows. Let's say you use Dropbox and you have home movies of your kids or your friends or your family and whatever, and you have a strong password and you've protected all this stuff. Fantastic. Something unfortunate happens to you and you happen to like die in a car accident or, or some other such horrific event. Now we've got terabytes and terabytes and terabytes of data on the internet floating around completely encrypted with no access to anybody for that as well. So the... The other side of the equation of all this massive encryption and security and privacy is that you're going to have all these memories, all these events that have been captured. You know, maybe somebody wrote a fantastic book and they just were too shy to publish it. And we could have all benefited from it. Or there's a piece of music in there or there's some I mean, amazing code or whatever the case may be. Uh, these, 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 these artifacts of, of, of human ingenuity are baked in and now they're being stored. And we tell them first, hey, you know, as, as software developers, we kind of try to give people best practices. Say, hey, listen, you know, please use a strong password. Uh, you know, do this, do that. Get two-factor authentication. Get multi-factor authentication. Whatever your preference of level of paranoia you wish to indulge in. And we don't think of the other side. What happens to all this wonderful stuff once this person is no longer with us and all this uh, data is just floating on the internet, completely encrypted that nobody really can get access to? So that, that's the other side of the equation that I really don't see discussed much. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, definitely. I like are, are people going to start leaving their passwords and their will to their family members now and and how accurate would that be yeah. how often did you have to update that because you got breached and you have yeah. to go change it right and and it, it, it's kind of sad because I, I remember when i was a kid my my parents had you know the family albums and they're, they're still here and um I, I think that most people now, all their pictures are on their phone. They're on, you know, iCloud, on Google Drive, whatever. And if anything happens to that, they're all gone. There's no copy of it. 
you know, it's 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 very um, it's very scary. Yeah, you know what? And, and, and I'll tell you this, um, and this is just, you know, I'm, I'm obviously a very extreme example of this, but here's, here's what I've done to actually sort of manage some of that. What I've done is um, I have a uh, iCloud uh, massive one terabyte, I think is what the, the max they sell you, is what I have. So I have my, my parents and my mine and, you know, uh, my, one of my friends and, and family members, they're all attached to the system. But I have copies of all their stuff of the people who know on a Google Drive, and what I'm actually looking to invest in next is to get a little mini NAS driver at home that I can have a copy of it locally as well. Because like you said, uh, you know, only the paranoid, you know, Andy Grove, I think the Intel co-founder said, only the paranoid survive. And for me, it's like, yes, I'm, I feel fantastic and, 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 and uh, amazing that all this data has been backed up and saved, but I also feel uh, like at any given moment, one of those, those particular cloud services can pull the plug on me, right? I may say something during these risky conversations, it's, it's very likely, that will upset and offend somebody, and they'll just say, you know what? This guy is just basically itching to be banned. So, you know, we're just going to shut off his account, right? And so I think about that. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things that I, I worry about. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to get a NAS drive. And yes, that comes to another problem because, okay, you have a NAS drive and now you have a fire in the house. Well, okay, yeah, sure. That's going to happen. At that point, I, I'll be really honest with you. If there's a fire in my house, I'm trying to get a, a escape. My NAS drive is the last thing I'm thinking about. I want to make sure that, uh, you know, all the loved ones and all my pets are out. But uh, this is the world we've kind of created for ourselves. There's there's so much um, uh, costs to doing things that there the benefits sometimes are short sighted in the sense that yes, I have a one uh, you know a fantastic password manager, but look at the consequences of all that. Yeah, and and I, I remember um, speaking of like say events in your house. I, I remember there's this um, uh, episode in The Sopranos right where. Uh, Tony's basement floods, and the first thing they go for is the family albums, right? Yep. And and you know nowadays, like, what would that look like? It, you know, you look for USB drives, you look for that kind of stuff. <laughs> well, USB drives because your bitcoins are on it, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. So so you know that's sort of the uh, uh, fantastic thing about this 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 uh, new world that we've kind of created. I'm kind of interested to see where this goes over the next 10, 15 years, and. And now that 5G is coming out, and you know, I work for telecoms, you know, just so that we can both uh, be on the same page on that front. And I, I look forward to the uh, latency being reduced because of the new OFDMA uh, algorithms that are being put in place and Wi-Fi 6 coming online. And, and we're going to get all this latency-free communication built in for free as a side benefit. And the, the, you know, it's going to be a slow process to wind all that out until all the devices come out that actually support Wi-Fi 6 and all the devices that support 5G. But I think we're going to see some really fantastic technology emerging from all that. Just the, the ability to communicate fast is one thing, but to be able to communicate fast without latency, because fast and latency are not exactly the same thing, right? Most people don't know this. It's like, yes, my internet's 500 gigabit of um, uh, uh, 500 megabytes per second, but my latency is like 18 milliseconds or, or 100 milliseconds. And, and, and I think when the world shifts to that point of view where latency starts to become almost a non-factor, uh, that's going to be fantastic. But uh, one of the things that I've been uh, looking into as you know, uh, we're looking to deploy the 5G networks is the, the conversation around the, uh, the trade-offs we're making on that front. And I mean by that uh, specifically with NASA and the, uh, the weather people. They're saying, listen, the satellites that are hovering over the Earth and the frequency that they use to measure the precipitation in terms of the water molecule and content on, in the sky happens to coincide and overlap perfectly with this new 5G spectrum that you guys are about to launch. And if you launch these, uh, our accuracy 
goes down by 30%. And so the question is as follows. Yes, you want faster network communications and you want you know reduced latency, but are you willing to make that trade-off for 30% reduced weather accuracy for projections of storms and, and, and hurricanes? And that's a conversation that's not really being had. You know, I've I've talked to people in the tech community that I usually have my conversations with, and they aren't even aware that this is really a problem. Have you heard anything on your end? I've mostly heard uh, concerns about um, human health hazards, not actually about weather satellites. I didn't know about that. Ah, and what what human health hazards have you been hearing about? Uh, mostly that you know electromagnetic radiation, uh, that that kind of stuff. Yeah, you know what? I, I always find that, you know, when I, whenever somebody brings that up to me, and I always try to look at it in the best possible light, which is I say, look, first of all, this is a byproduct of poorly wor used words, right? Whenever we use the word electromagnetic radiation, that means everything from radio to light to yeah. infrared to gamma. So, yes, unfortunately, that's that's what the word is. But the word radiation, as soon as you, as soon as you say the word radiation, everybody immediately thinks of a nuclear bomb going off, right? So. <laughs> So I'm like, okay, what are you really worried about? Like, oh, this is going to damage my health and this, that, and the other. And I said, okay, I hear you. I'm not dismissing you, but I just want you to know something. And, and it's just, this is just a thought experiment that you could run with, which is, let's say there's this uh, conspiracy of a bunch of people who want to make everybody sick. I'm, I'm going to rent your argument. I'm not buying it, but I'm going to rent it for a few minutes. And I want you to play along with me here. So let's say I'm one of these rich people who really wants to control the world and I'm engaged in like, you know, population control, whatever conspiracy is your flavor of the day. Great. What am I going to do? Oh, I'm going to put out these radio towers that are going to beam all this, uh, uh, quote unquote, radiation into the houses and, and, and hurt everybody. Okay. But I'm not immune to those. If I in install these satellites uh, or these, these towers and they're beaming all this harmful radiation, it's not like I'm free from that. I'm going to be uh, impacted by that. My kids, my family, my, you know, my pets, uh, my, everybody that I know is going to be negatively affected by this. The skin in the game of conversation around that is that... If we're doing this, and it's intentionally me doing something harmful to the rest of the population, I am not going to get away with it, right? I'm going to get as much of it as uh, you could possibly think. But there's this fantastic video, and a shout out to Veritasium, where uh, he does this uh, really awesome video where he goes to Chernobyl, and he goes to all these places, and he's just recording the amount of radiation you're exposed to. I, I encourage everybody to check it out. Uh, and, and I don't want to give away the ending, but the ending is going to be a gut punch. And, and I always tell people, I'm like, before we have this conversation about radiation, I just want you to watch that video. And uh, Veritasium is a fantastic channel. And that one particular video about radiation and bananas and the amount of radiation that comes off a of banana. And people don't know. That's where that word, I think, I, I think we really could have done humanity a greater amount of service if we had just chosen a different word. And instead of using electromagnetic radiation and radiation from nuclear weapons, if we had just had two different words for that, I think this whole conversation would have been put to bed a long time ago. Yeah, it's actually what they did for uh, MRIs. Yeah, yeah, right. All all this stuff, and, and it's funny because you walk into the hospital, it literally says nuclear medicine, and people, I'm like, uh, so you see what those words are, right? And 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 they kind of don't register these things, and unfortunately it creates room for these politicians or some of these uh, other types or conspiracy theorists. And, and, and I'm not dismissing all conspiracy theorists. Obviously, there are some things that are just so messed up that the conspiracy theorists get it right. And they don't get it right because of logical reasons. Sometimes they just get it right because of the probability of stumbling on something like that is likely to happen. So I'm not here to espouse conspiracy theories as good things. I'm not here to say that they're all bad things. I'm just here to say sometimes they're right. Most often they're not. Leave it at that. But all the conversations that get uh, thrown about with regards to, you know, uh, radiation, I, I, and, I, and I'm going to give you an example, which, you know, when I first started working at this particular company, I was just doing tech support. And I had this particular gentleman call in, 
and the tech support I was doing was for wireless. So I was helping people who had, you know, cell phone troubles and whatnot. And this gentleman wanted uh, a, a, a a wireless hub, something that they can connect. And this is like some yoga spa retreat type of place where they can come in and do various yoga things. Well, that's great. Do do you right? Whatever works for you. And he had uh, he wanted a wireless hub. And he wanted the wireless hub so that they can connect to Wi-Fi if the people wanted to put Instagram photos or whatever the case may be because nothing says yoga retreat like Instagram photos, right? But what was interesting was I said to him, I said, hey, listen, if it's a business and the location you're in, it would be a lot more effective for you cost-wise alone to actually bring in like an actual internet, like bring in a cable modem or a fiber optic cable and just use that and set up a, a Wi-Fi radio uh, and have an access point give all these people uh, the amount of uh, internet connection they desire. So that's a reasonable suggestion to make. And I'm actually literally saving you costs because when, you, when, you, uh, when you're in Canada and you buy one of these or rent one of these um, mobile hotspot devices per, for monthly usage, the cost is kind of uh, exorbitant. It's not meant for everyday use. And my jaw dropped at the answer the man gave me, which was that, uh, yeah, we don't want any cables drawn in here because we don't want the radiation. So I was one of those instances where I said, you know what? I'm not even going to argue with you. It's like you're so you're not even wrong. It's uh, you know to 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 borrow a famous quote. I'm not even going to just uh, I'll just let this one be. I said, you know what? You're right. I apologize for um, for making the suggestion. Clearly, you've thought this through. So you know, I didn't want to be sardonic. Obviously, I try to treat people with respect. But sometimes I get so irritated when people say things like that, where it just drives me bonkers. So my question to you to run a back out back in your direction is how serious are these concerns? Are these people literally like just using the word radiation as a scare tactic or is there legit conversations that are being had about the prospects of what this technology may unleash upon the rest of us? So, I mean, you, you always have to look at things uh, from uh, their perspective, right? Because at the end of the day, they're the ones that are bringing concerns, right? Because yep. um, a lot of us types are usually very enthusiastic about technology and we sometimes overlook these things. So whether or not it's real or true, right? Um, the fact that there are people out there with these concerns shows that, you know, there's some level of paranoia, uh, that we should listen to now in this case, you know, very easily some people who are uh, familiar with the technology should at least, because right now I think most people don't even know what, what 5g is or what the actual benefits are compared to 4g technologies. Right. So very true. There's a, this is something that I'm actually uh, really satisfied with the current U.S. administration is that they're, they're doing a lot of these sort of seminars and they're bringing people from the industry and kind of talking about these kinds of things and trying to um, promote actual technology. Obviously, they're doing it for, you know, political and for, um, you know, national tech purposes, but it's the goal still there. And but my actual concern goes from uh, so I, I like almost everything that Elon Musk does. Right. I, I'm really happy about what SpaceX does on the daily. But so I looked at the, I don't know if you saw that they launched the Starlink uh, satellites yeah, last week. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they launched, I, th I think it was, um, how, how, how many were there? Like, uh, I think it was like 12 for their first cluster, right? I think it was 60. I think it was 60 actually. Okay. Yeah. I think it was 60. Oh, no, you're right. You're right. It's, they have 60 satellites, but they can do 12 launches with various amounts of uh, satellites. Yeah, right. Yeah, but go on. And, and so they're launching these things out there. And, you know, my initial thought is always, wow, that's great. You know, you know, Internet at a possibly low cost all over the world. That's that's I, I can't even imagine the the amount of people that can benefit from that. And mm -hmm. the other side of that is, hey, we're launching these tiny things all over the atmosphere. You know, 
if your router goes down or your you know your ISP provided modem goes down in your house, you know you call the guy, you argue with ISP <laughs> two minutes. The guy comes yeah. in, he switches out. What happens with these? We can't send the guy up there to you know you know change the antenna or whatever. These things are going to be there forever. Yep. Yep. Uh, oh, on that front, I always I'm always reminded. I'm like, you know what? That's interesting. Uh, you bring that up because I look at the, uh, the satellites that provide GPS for us for a previous conversation. Right? I don't know if you've I, I, not to my to my knowledge. I'm sure it's happened because that's how technology works. But do you ever recall an instance where GPS just stopped working? Has that ever happened? Is that I, just me imagining it, or I'm sure it must have happened. It can't possibly been like it's been up there all this time, glitch free for for as long as it's been up there. I've only ever heard of instances of GPS not working from, say, either jamming or things like. Um, I know that when uh, uh, Putin flies, mm. GPS acts very weird around his uh, airspace. <laughs> yeah, well, obviously for for obvious yeah. reasons. But uh, no, I'll I'll give you another uh, instance of this where where I could try to get a conversation, like you said. I, I you know, and and it, this is me learning to be a better person always is uh, to empathize with person's uh, point of view. So when I listen to somebody talk about the concerns about 5G and all this stuff, and you know, uh, my rage about the misuse of the word radiation aside, I always remind them of the following. I say, look, I can empathize with you on the following grounds. So initially, for the vast majority of human history, our communication was one to one, right? So I spoke to you, you spoke to me, and that's essentially how we exchange ideas. Things move very slowly. Why? Well, because that's just what happens. Then it's just a matter of recall. Like you can't remember what I said, and you can't remember what I said about an hour ago. I can't remember what you said ten minutes ago. That's just how it works. And then you have that generational situation, right? Where it's like, I think it was a Nigerian um, uh, quote that says, you have the eyes of your, you have your own eyes, but you have the ears of your father, or is it backwards? Either way, your father's telling you what to see in the world and you're going to grow up based on his experience. Great, no problem. So one-to-one finally shifted to one-to-n, right? Which is you now have a printing press and you write something and n number of people can have access to that. Kind of cool. Still very slow, right? The, 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 the speed aspect of it is that the, by the time you write something down and you get it proofread by your friend who may not be literate, um, and by the time they get it to the printing press, and by the time that printing press prints it, and then by the time you distribute that across uh, you know, the vast uh, space of, of you want to cover, you're looking at at least a decade, right? So that's still pretty slow. And then you have the uh, one to end, which is a little bit faster, which was when you had radio, right? So I, I get on the bullhorn and I'm like, hey, you know, my name is um, uh, Joseph Stalin. I'm going to be your new czar. And uh, welcome to Soviet Russia and all things glorious, right? So I have a radio that never shuts off. Uh, I think the same thing happens in, in North Korea. So we have the one-to-end relationship, which is kind of cool. It's like, okay, now you have speed that's being transmitted really, really quickly. So if I say something, it's basically going to be heard. And then we had sort of the, uh, w- which is why I think podcasts are very interesting because it's a, it's, it's a, it's a harking back to history, which is when we first had uh, uh, you know, talk radio where you can call in. So it's now it's one-to-end, but at the end, uh, is broadcasting back to the to the one, right? So I, I say something and somebody can call in and we can discuss this. And we had the internet that comes up and, and all of a sudden we have, um, you know, uh, end to the power two, right? So I, I create something on my website, I post it up, a bunch of people can see it, it's kind of cool. But we get to that next stage, which is, you know, uh, two to the power of n, right? So now I record a podcast and n number of people can subscribe to it and listen to it. And I have, you know, guests such as yourself coming on and we're having these conversations about various aspects of technology and politics and all these things. Kind of cool. So if you want to talk radiation, what we could do is we could say, what about fake and false and misleading information, right? There's propaganda, there's, there's, there's um, manipulation in terms of marketing as 
you know, we were discussing, uh, you know, I've been following, uh, the first thing I really noticed when I was following the scene was his um, uh, conversations against Monsanto on how uh, GMO and, and uh, I think that weed killer, and Joe Norman was talking about it as well. Yeah, Roundup. Roundup. Yeah, that's right. So the, I, I had no idea about that stuff, right, because I never really paid attention to it. But then when I heard them talk about it, and I saw the vitriolic attack against them, and I was kind of very happy to see that they were proven right, because history tends to do that. Um, and I'm happy that it happened very quickly as opposed to post, uh, you know, uh, usually they, people get proven right after they die. But I'm kind of really glad that it kind of happened to them uh, while they're still able to, uh, you know, sort of enjoy the, the, the glory of, of, of calling out people who are literally uh, causing harm to others. And, and, and these guys call them out on it. So uh, when I say to people, I'm like, yeah, you know, your concern is about uh, radiation. Well, let's define the word radiation in the following terms. Let's define radiation as false information. Right. So, so yes, there's a new method to falsely uh, push out information. And as we both know, uh, false information travels much faster than, than, the, than the truth ever could. So your real concern could be around a topic that says, hey, you know what? I'm really uh, upset about these new technologies that are coming out that are going to enable low latency, fast communication of false information. And that is a conversation we can actually have where we can say, hey, there's common ground here that we can say, yeah, you know what? There's all these people, and much like yourself, I'm a massive fan of uh, of, of uh, Elon Musk. And there's all these people who just, if this guy takes a breath, and they go, oh, look at this moron. He can't even breathe in through his nose. Why is he breathing through his mouth, right? Like this guy, no matter what he does, uh, he's always going to be unfairly criticized. And so there's going to be this new layer of accelerated uh, capabilities built into false information, propaganda, and all this. Uh, you know, and I don't want to use the term false news because obviously it's been politicized to death. But there's, there's, there's a lot of stuff out there that's happening where technology is enabling a lot of, um, you know, uh, shady characters to do uh, a lot of harm to people. And, and I, I literally just today, I'll give you a quick example of it. I was in a parking lot. I was going to grab some coffee. And there's these two gentlemen that I've actually ran into twice now at different locations. And so what they do is it's very clever. They show up to you in their car and they say, hey, you know, and I live in Toronto and they want to go to Montreal, which is a, a, like a five-hour drive. And they're like, oh, you know, I have a family emergency. I kind of want to... I need to get to Montreal. I don't have any gas money. Do you have any money that you can loan me or lend me or ha let me have or whatever? And uh, obviously suspicion from, you know, from start. I would say, no, I'm, I'm really sorry. I can't do that. But, but they, won't, they won't let you finish the conversation right there. What the guy will do is he'll pull out a ring from his finger that looks like it's gold. Obviously, it's not. And he'll say, hey, it's not, I'm not just asking you for money. I want to give you this gold ring, uh, this, uh, this gold uh, ring in exchange for the money. And so I'm standing there, right? As a programmer, I'm thinking to myself, okay, how many ways can I check the falsehood of this particular set of statements? What I could actually just do is stick my head inside the car and look at the gas and see how much gas there is. And that would immediately prove the falsehood of the claims that he's making. Second of all, there's two guys in the car. So between the two of you, you don't have enough money to get from here to Montreal. Why are you going to Montreal? Third, why are you just randomly giving away a gold ring, quote unquote? And I oh know, obviously you, you go think through the scenarios, how this could turn violent and all that stuff. So I kind of left it alone. And then I was standing there and I had this moral conundrum, which was, okay, what if I pick up the phone and just call the police and say, look, this is the second time I've run into these guys. And the funny thing is they don't remember me, but I remember them because that's a very unusual thing for somebody to offer you, right? Give me some gas money in exchange for this gold ring. And I call the police and I say, hey, here's the car. Here's the description. Here are the plates. Here's the direction. Here's the location. They're basically standing around just fleecing people for money. And obviously they're looking for the most gullible of the bunch to, uh, to buy into this particular sob story. And I could create a scene for, for, for them. And, and what would happen invariably is that uh, if these guys have any brains whatsoever, they would remember. The last guy we spoke to was this guy. And they're kind of sort of in my neighborhood, in my area, right? And now I'll have a permanent enemy uh, who will say, hey, you know what? We want to approach this guy. 
We asked them for money, and next thing you know, the cops showed up, and, and now we have to explain ourselves to the police. So I've created myself an unnecessary enemy. And so I thought about that long and hard, and I still haven't really decided because it's just about an hour and a half, two hours ago, and I still haven't decided because I took down all their information, and I'm like, you know what? Should I or shouldn't I? Should I tell people about this? Should I tell the, pol the police officers about this to say, look, there's a couple of guys running a scam here? Or... Should I trust human beings to be adults that are grown up and I don't need to be infantilize them? I'm actually not their, their father figure. And let them decide for themselves that if you're willing to be taken for somebody who's going to give you fake gold in exchange for supposed gas money, then you kind of need to be error corrected on your own, right? So it's, what, are your, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's pretty uh, tough conundrum. But um, if, if, we, if we go back to um, libertarianism, right? So... The way I yep. would define it is just mm -hmm. protection of individual liberty, property rights, private property rights. Mm -hmm. And so those and peace and prosperity, but those are the basic principles. So at the end of the day, any solution where you uh, have to depend on the on the good judgment of others, right, is, is going to create problems. So in this case, it's it's very small, right? But I'm not sure how to frame it in a way that, because uh, in this case, it's it, it it's very tough, right? You you have yeah. these people in your neighborhood, right? So you know that you have to deal with the, you know the your your own community's relations, and you're making an enemy very close to you. So in that case, it's probably wisest to just uh, opt for people to have good judgment by themselves right and at the end of the day one thing that you always see is that most con men aren't usually that smart but the very good con men are usually extremely good right and right and so it it it, it counteracts that right so that I, th I think that the majority of people so if this is a obviously it's a real example but if it's a metaphor for say um should we rely on some sort of entity like the state to protect people from their own mistakes then it's it's obviously a categorical no because then you'd just be creating drones right that can't think for themselves which is why i i just deplore all these all these mechanisms that facebook and twitter are doing where they say oh yeah we will you know flag fake news or whatever it's just it's ridiculous I remember a time, not even five years ago, where, you know, false news stories were everywhere. But, you know, it was it usually was very obvious. You know, if you were smart enough, you saw that, you know, the website you're reading in, into has a, you know, font that's from the 90s, no background, etc. And then you would very easily realize, hey, this isn't a very serious source, right? So if we have to rely on you know, an entity like the state to make these decisions, decisions for us, then we're creating a society that's just very, very unstable and very, very fragile, right? I think we should, like, we should ensure that individuals are able to make those decisions for themselves. Now, whether that goes through, you know, your own, um, you know, parenting, whether that goes through education, et cetera, there's different mechanisms where that can, that can, um, where, where, where you can influence that. But at the end of the day, I think that, like, say, for, for your own, uh, family, for example, if you're if you're making those decisions for them, and you want to teach them something. It would always be wiser to um, teach those that depend on you to be um, competent rather than to be safe, right? Because 
if those people are competent, they're able to make those decisions for themselves and will eventually create an environment where people have good judgment. Whereas if they're just safe and isolated, it's just like people who, you know, are are in sterile environments all their lives and develop allergies later. If you don't have those stressors here and there, you're you're never going to have, you know, a, a competent individual. So in that case, I don't think I, I'd call the cops on them. Yeah, well, see, see, that's the thing where it, it kind of goes back to another example we had. And I'll give you this uh, example where in Canada there's this um, massive anti-bully campaign, right? So they want to teach all the kids not to bully. So I look at that and I say, okay, here's here's literally one of those uh, f of x and x, right? That's the function versus the usage of it. That doesn't make sense. So, so to me, and you know, Nassim brought that up a long time ago. It's like it, it, I don't want to teach you to, to to stop the storm from coming. I want to teach you how to handle a storm when it does arrive, right? So yep. so so the best strategy is, uh, you know, enroll your children in self-defense class right off the bat. You know, a little bit of ju- Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Uh, you know, you don't, you don't want them to be fighters. You just want them to, know, if anybody picks on them, they'll be sorry that they did, right? So yeah, it's not fun that they have to go to these classes and they'll get choked out and they'll, they'll probably hurt their shoulder and knee a little bit, but they're kids. That's okay. It's better that they're being, they're, they're, they're learning that in, a, in, a, in an environment where there's a competent instructor teaching them. And so they know, Hey, you know what? The real world, when sometimes things get ugly, you just have to know how to defend yourself. And so it goes back to what you were saying about, you know, teaching them to be uh, competent. And, and I believe personally, and, and, and I've seen this in numerous situations where the very best thing you could do for your kid is to enroll them in martial arts. Any kind of martial arts will do. Obviously, pick one that's real. Uh, so, you know, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu is a really good one. And, and, and the reason I like that is because Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and, and I've tried it myself, so I, I speak, I, I would never recommend something to somebody unless I've done it myself. That's one of the rules I like to follow in life. Um, it, it's it's really humbling, and, and I like it because what, what ends up happening is you get involved, and you know I'm I'm a pretty big guy. I'm about two twenty, six feet tall, you know, uh, heavy weightlifter. So uh, I can if I if I need to use strength, I know how to do it. But the, the problem is, uh, the person I was grappling with is was literally maybe maybe on a good day half my size, right? And and he took me down, and within seconds I couldn't breathe, and I was like it's like I was suffocating as if somebody was slowly drowning me, but they're watching me and had this grin on his face. You know, I, I told him, I said, listen, man, I'm not here to be all, you know, please don't hurt my shoulders. I, I, I do have a regular day job. I don't need to be in pain for this, but just, I'm just trying to learn, right? So he's like, yeah, no problem, man. I'm just going to show you how this works. I said, cool. You know, so we get in there and, and he just puts me down and, he, and, he's, and he's just slowly uh, taking away my ability to breathe. And he's got this grin and I can, I'll never forget it. He had this smirk and grin on his face and he's just showing me. And I'm sitting there and I'm just choking and slowly unable to breathe. And he's like, just tap out whenever you're ready, right? So I realized, I said, okay. This is a type of lesson that I would love to have my, uh, you know, uh, nieces, nephews, and you know, uh, kids that are around. This is what you need to learn. It's like, look, I'm like twice the size of this guy. Gently put me down, and he's in total control of me at all times. Because once he controls my oxygen intake level, my 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 squat and my deadlift, my bench press, none of that matters. What matters at this point in time is the fact that I can't breathe, and therefore he has my 100% undivided attention, and I know better than to ever attack this guy, right? So so he did that once. I said, okay, cool, that was nice. Um, let's try again. So he's like, okay. So we took about five or six different variations and every single time. And I always told him, I said, uh, because I don't want any torn ligaments or, or tendons or anything, just go for the chokes. Don't go for any like, you know, uh, joint, uh, hold. He's like, no problem. I got you. So five, six different times we rolled. I, I was lucky. I think the longest I survived was 30 seconds because he would invariably grab, grab me in some particular weird way where I didn't know what was happening. And next thing you know, I can't breathe. Right. So, 
after losing enough brain cells, I realized, hey, you know what? This is uh, this is good. This is just a lesson because I hear about it. You know, uh, Joe Rogan talks about it. You know, Jocko. All these gentlemen are always talking about how uh, uh, good these particular uh, grappling skills are, and and I got to experience it. So so to me, it goes back to that same conversation. I have uh, you know nieces and nephews, and I always tell them, hey, you know what? You need to get them enrolled uh, just so that they can have the self-confidence to know that if somebody's bullying them, that they don't need to go call a teacher or parent or whatever. They can just say, look, I really don't want you to engage in these particular behaviors. And if they, you know, they get physical, just have the ability to gently choke them or to general, just, just let them know that hey, I'm not the kind of guy you can just walk all over. And so that, that kind of ties back into the whole libertarian mindset, which is that um, it's better to understand how to handle a storm than it is to try to prevent the storm from ever occurring in the first place. Yeah. And, and I mean, you, you see that across, it's not just with bullying, you see it across, you know, schools, high schools where kids are even more sheltered. And I mean, first it started out with actual physical violence, right? Where, you know, if, if, if anyone, I, I know that in the U S they have like zero tolerance policies, right. And like, you know, if a kid hits another kid, they both get detention or whatever. And but, you know, it's it's starting to go further than that. Now it's like, oh, if you say a bad word, then, you know, you're you're also um, you also get reprimanded. And it, it, it's going to get to a point where we're just going to produce these individuals that basically have absolutely no, no use, can't handle themselves. It's just it's it's sad. Yeah, well, it's uh, you know, that that goes back to the whole, you know, conversation about. Uh, you know, freedom of speech and liberty and whatnot, and kids who can't physically act out in violence toward each other tend to act out via social media, bullying each other, right? And it kind of goes under the radar. Nobody really notices. So, you know, these are the ramifications of, of, of building a system. I remember when I was in, uh, I, I succinctly remember, I was in school, and you were kind of allowed to fight, not really, but they kind of like, okay, yeah, they got into a little schoolyard scuffle, no big deal. And I remember that because... Uh, I got, you know, a couple of fights when I first got into school. And then slowly they started to introduce this, um, you know, we're going to start suspending you. And then eventually became to zero tolerance, which is the most hilarious thing ever. Because I'm like, okay, um, human nature by default will naturally run up against this particular limit you're setting to it all the time. And so now anything you did, it got it, both parties immediately suspended. So what happens when you do that? Bullying of other kinds start to take place, right? So now it's the process of, oh... I don't like that kid. Let's just spread rumors. You know, he, you know, eats his boogers or yeah. something. And now when it's time to play baseball, nobody wants to pick you to play on their team and you don't know what's going on or why it's happening. And so these, 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 these shifts that people try to put onto a system, it goes back to Nassim Taleb's concept, right? It's a better progressive. Like you, you want the world to fit into this particular little bed. It's not going to fit into it. Now. So yeah, and it's much easier <laughs> when you're so far away, right? That's, that's why you, you, you never want these you know, big bureaucracies that decide what your kid should go through or whatever. If anything, those decisions should be as close as possible to you. So you have some form of control and it's grounded into reality somehow. 100%. Well, uh, Faraz, I really appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation with us. I know it's been, uh, it's probably pretty late in your end. So I just want to give you the opportunity to uh, close up, uh, um, you know, any uh, statements you want to make to, to the rest of our listeners. And I will definitely put up your social media links so they can find you on Twitter. So the floor is yours for the closing statements, my friend. Right. Um, I mean, uh, we basically went through almost everything I wanted to talk about, except maybe the um, uh, I, I have some uh, resources up on my Twitter account that some people can look into if they're interested uh, about uh, 
more into the conversation about sheltering and kind of how we, we we tend to want to overcorrect as human beings. So there's some things over there for like eyeglasses, shoes, etc. So definitely check that out. And uh, otherwise, yeah, that was great conversation. Thanks for having me. No worries, but like I said, before, you know, I, I want you to feel free if you want to expound on any of those particular topics. Uh, the floor is still yours. Go right ahead. Uh, we want you to feel like you had the, you know, a risky conversation isn't worth it if we have to cut it short if something is left unsaid, right? So please feel free to to expand on those ideas. All right. Um, well, uh, for example, for uh, in the case of, say, eyeglasses, right? Um, I think that, especially going back to kids, uh, we, we, we have this tendency to, when we see a problem, we, we want to fix it and, and we tend to overcorrect, right? So um, uh, n nowadays, whenever, say, I, I hear the same story all the time because I've actually been researching this a lot and talking to people about their experiences. And, and what I found is that most people, when they start wearing glasses, you know, their children, um, uh, eventually one of their teachers or whatever notices that uh, they're uh, squinting at the board or they can't see well, and then they get brought to a doctor. Doctor says that, hey, you, you need to prescribe this kid glasses. And then it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And so definitely, I, th I think that, you know, the science not settled on that because right now it's a very, uh, you know, theoretical approach and there's not much research on what actually causes myopia. And so I really think that people should look into that. And that's basically it, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. So we will, uh, uh, thank you for sharing that. You're, you're right, I did have my own experience with uh, getting eyeglasses for the first time. And, you know, the 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 immediate reaction of my optometrist, who I, you know, great person, you could tell they genuinely care, but there was a massive amount of overcorrection. You need this, 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 and this. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> you know, it's, my, it's my first time. How about we just take it easy and just try to do some simple corrective measures of uh, instead of giving me glasses, how about you tell me what I should stop doing so I can see if there's any improvement, right? So via negativa. But that's, uh, yeah, that, that tends to overflow everywhere you, 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 you kind of look into it. But uh, we do appreciate you bringing that up. I will have those links. I will have your Twitter link po posted up. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate your thoughts. And, uh, hey, thank uh, you. It's great to be here. No worries. Have a great one. You too. We hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we have. The truth is, any worthy conversation you'll ever have will inherently be a risky conversation. As long as it's open and honest where ideas are exchanged and emotions swirl. Thank you for listening, be anti-fragile, and carry on the ancient tradition in your own unique way. By saying what only you can say and doing what only you can do. Abiding by Milton's words, this is Emerson Sadat signing off. Wishing you the very best of worthy and risky conversations.